Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
town, look at this big town. Original one. East of town, look at East of town, look at this big town. Original one.
We like to make two special acknowledgments today as it relates to on the ninth this day in the year of 1922, our beloved brother and the first president of Guinea, Ahmed Secretary, who was born in Guinea and throughout the world where you'll find the Guinea community, you'll find them celebrating the 100-year anniversary of his birthday. And at this point in time, we would like to pay our respect to this great Pan-African giant who was a theoretical and practitioner of the African Revolution and carrying out a Pan-Africanism. And to do this, we would like to ask one of our players and panelists today, whose organization is one of the contributors and heritage of his life and legacy. Brother Anthony Wynn with the All African Peoples, Rupture Party GC, to say a few words about our brother, Ahmed Secretary, the first president of Guinea. Brother Anthony, as related to Secretary Day and the life and work of our brothers, we will turn the mic over to you. We now bring you, Brother Gonamu. Thank you for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. And uh, and thank you for giving me the honor of saying a few words regarding Ahmed Secretary. Today is the 100th anniversary of his birth. Uh, he was born in Guinea on January 9, 1922. He is a grandson of Samori Ture, another freedom fighter in the struggle against French colonialism in Africa. Ahmed Sekoure was the first president of Independent Guinea and uh, he was a foremost theoretician, practitioner, and advocate of Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Uh, the struggle for independence of Guinea from France was catalyzed by Guinea's no vote uh, to a membership in the French Union that was cast in 1958. And that was a catalyst for Guinea's independence from France. And throughout the time, under le the leadership of Ahmed Secretary, and the Democratic Party of Guinea. Guinea served as a, as a leaning spark in the struggle for Pan-Africanism. The total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Guinea while the Democratic Party was of Guinea was in power, 
advocated and supported and expressed solidarity with various revolutionary movements throughout Africa. And also, as well as Asia, uh, as attested to by uh, his stance against Zionism. And also, the support given to other liberation movements throughout Africa that were struggling for genuine and uh and um Ture also uh expressed solidarity and gave support to lib uh revolutionary movements throughout the world such as Cuba, Vietnam and uh countless other uh struggling peoples. Uh, today, uh, we honor the contribution that Ahmed Secretary made to the African Revolution through his work with the Democratic Party of Guinea, known by his French acronym, PDG, and the contribution that Guinea made to our liberation struggle uh, during the time it was in power in Guinea. And because of, um, of uh, the stance that the PDG took under the leadership of Ahmed Circuit Terrain, uh, the PDG was overthrown in Guinea shortly after Ahmed Secretary's death in 1984. But the struggle continues to this day for Pan-Africanism and genuine independence. And uh, let's see, for more information about Ahmed Secretary and the struggle for Pan-Africanism, please visit our website, www.aprp-gc.org, where you could find uh, more information about uh, not only Secretary, but also uh, our, uh, our leading Pan-Africanists, such as uh, Kwame Nkrumah and Kwame Ture, who worked along with uh, Ahmed Secretary to achieve uh, Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to say these few words regarding Ahmed Secretary. We thank you, Brother Anthony, and we like to remind the audience, one of the beautiful things about Secretary Ahmed Secretary is his display of the African personality. When they were challenged for the right to be independent and be separated from the oppressor, 
I will paraphrase one of the statements he made that best typifies who he was and the beautiful history of our people when it comes to struggling for their liberation. He told the whole world as an African, as an African nation, the African people in Guinea will refer they will refer poverty in liberty than to riches in slavery. And that shook the world. And it's a statement that we should all not only remember, but also internalize it and understand its significance. So right now, we'd like to thank you, Brother Anthony. And we also would like to just do a shower and acknowledgement of a special day also that was taking place today by Alliance for Global Justice, one of their members and a good friend and freedom fighter um, with this radio station and also a supporter ally of the African Revolution with Brother Chuck Kaufman. We'd like to give our farewell. Thank Brother Chuck, who was born in the year 1952, and he just made a transition um, about a week ago. And Brother Chuck was a freedom fighter, and you will find a lot of his impact on the world. Will probably be in the area of the Central America, Latin America, uh, solidarity movement struggles. And he, too, was a good example of what it, uh, it's like to be one of principle and one who fought against oppression and be dealing with Mr. Our Brother Chuck. And tomorrow night from 7 to 9 o'clock, we will be doing a special with a line for global justice in honor of Chuck Kaufman. So please tune in tomorrow night from 7 to 9 p.m. on this station, Africa on the Moon. So at this point in time, we're going to take a rough culture break. And when we come back, we're going to introduce our political panelists and analysts, and we're going to get started for our party. We'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere. This is Africa on the Move. No mind you 
She implied the four progressive congresswomen empowered represented a handicap to the Democratic Party in the sense policies they embraced are at odds with most voters. The implication being their style of politics are in, incompatible with reaching voters and as a consequence would ensure landslide victories for Republicans during midterm elections in 2022. During Clinton's analysis, not once did she contribute potential Republican gains in Congress to, state, to a statewide voter suppression, gerrymandering districts to ensure Republican wins, or the right-wing propaganda drive or, came, or campaign of unprecedented amounts, levels of money, dogma that is, contribute to Republican candidates from sources in the U.S. and from around the world. Clinton's assertion mainstream Democratic policies of old would resonate with states without either a Democratic or Republican majority struck me as illusionary. More of the same policy of the past are precisely why voter turnout in the U.S. hovers around 35% participation rate of voters. And a fusion of new ideas are badly needed. Recent polls have illustrated a propensity for a change among the population, starting with the fact that the largest voting bloc of the electorate is millennials and Generation Z. Young people between the ages of 18 and 24 years of age, and we're talking about 27 million people. With the election of President Joe Biden, the level of fear for U.S. longevity has subsided, and the level of hope is increasing. According to the Institute of Politics, hopefulness among whites of all ages increased from 35 to 46 percent. For Africans, hope uh, between the years of 2017 and 2021 increased from 54 percent to 72 percent, despite racism, polarization, and police brutality. Among Hispanics, a similar level of optimism prevailed at margins of 40 to 69%, despite immigration and racism woes impacting their community. Yearning for a different paradigm, just what could politics offer to bring about a better world? Polls conclude young people essentially want to see the realization of political policy they envision of use to themselves and society at large. The policies they envision are one, Elimination of racism that systematically applied to minorities, especially qualified minorities. Two, government policy to curb climate change. Three, make health care a human right. And four, end the stigma associated with immigration. Clearly, Hillary Clinton and her Democratic cohorts would find these preferences in opposition to established norms and values and based by establishment Democrats. Implicit in the demand of young voters is a rejection of Democratic Party orthodoxy and the enactment or pursuit of genuine mass interests where political policy contributes to a sane world and the elimination of destructive self-interest that imperils us all. The only voices magnifying the interests of the masses resides with progressive elements within the Democratic Party. Specifically, I'm referring to the so-called squad, which consists of four courageous women of color willing to confront establishment Democrats and to give voice to policies that express the need for change and the frustrations articulated by so many of the governed. Authoring and endorsing bills in the interest of humanity, this group epitomizes, for the most part, integrity and courage. In perusing many of the policy policy initiatives they endorse, doing what is right and selfless seems to emanate in their choices. Ihan Omar, endorsing a bill HR 4894, seeks to establish federal criteria which honestly assess well-being in U.S. households, while endorsing bill HR 5385, which pushed the debate on affordable housing front and center. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Green New Deal creates the president a green economy is good for business and the possibility of saving the planet as well as economies, which are not indistinguishable. AOC, along with her colleagues, also endorsed the Bill HR 6261, 
which established the significance of African-American history and ending the black-white nexus, which is the basis for all discrimination in American society. Rashida Tlaib endorsement exposes the absurdity of hunger in the U.S. Sponsor of Bill H.R. 6272, this is a good a question. Why should students, particularly in universities, find it difficult to find sustenance or food to eat in the land of milk and honey? Her sponsorship of Bill H.R. 6249 is particularly forward-thinking when it ponders the rationale for subsidizing oil companies for destroying the planet. Last is the most profound piece of legislation falls on Ayanna Presley. H.R. 6296, endorsed by Congresswoman Presley, seeks to push back against government overreach that seeks to deny human rights of individuals who are in custody. This bill will mandate the state notify loved ones in case of death, injury, or illness. Among her endorsements, H.R. 6168 stands out perhaps as the most prophetic. The realization, the realization of future generations will inherit a life of torment and despair belies the capitalist system void of humanity. If the Center for Disease Control report is an indication of human turmoil manifesting currently, we can surmise, barring into capitalism, we can extrapolate what the future holds for the future generations in the society. The report states, as early as March 2021, 51% of the 18 to 24 years old felt depressed. 28% felt they were better off dead or, or felt desire to hurt themselves. 68% reported having little energy, 59% had trouble sleeping, and 49% had poor appetites. This demographic, barring unfortunate incidences, will become parents into the future. Conditions that perpetuate the lethargic feelings of despair to a large extent would hamper this demographic's ability to pass on needed coping skills to their offspring. Given the deterioration affecting capitalism, assuming the last 30 to 40 years into the future, the conditions are projected to be more harsh. Now, in the harshening of social conditions and, and absence of anything resembling a family structure, we certainly can understand why Bill H.R. 6168 relevance as it seeks to emphasize the importance of human life. Now, certainly Hillary Clinton's assertion that the old way is the best way does not stand up to scrutiny. This reasoning, in part, accounts for the public's consensus at the poll, while underscoring there is re really no definitive difference between establishment Democrats and their Republican counterparts. The so-called squad is the only congressional people offering a real alternative to ending the class war while attempting to bring sustainability to this world. So now close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Um, Brother Haki, just listening to your um, recent statements, um, like the brother and sister on the corner would say, damn, that Hillary Clinton and Democratic Party, they are some ungrateful people. But anyway, let's continue to move on. Brother Anthony, talk to us. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Okay. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, fine, Brother Anthony. We're now going to bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, as well, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. 
I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the often finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And I believe that women hold up half the sky. That's why I'm for the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, yes. And um, the struggle continues to be to get rid of the lies and the distortions and the mis misguided um, leaders, uh, leadership and, and, and get on the correct path to socialism, which is a new democratic revolution. And I just hope that we are up to the task. Thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And now we'll make our transition to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Sister Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Africa, and to the panelists and our listening audience. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum, Brother Africa. <clears throat> I am uh, delighted to be here, and uh, we really need to, as Brother Haki had mentioned, we need to talk about legislation that uh, focus on, focuses on human rights, such as housing, education, health care, uh, the environment, and on uh, women's rights, women and children uh, with education will change the world. Thank you so much, Brother Africa. And we're going to see if our caller who's been waiting on the line would like to maybe come in and introduce themselves, and uh, we'll continue to start with that first segment, what's going on in your world community, but we're going to bring in our caller, supporter 0673-0673. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Oh, 0673, like make a statement, say hello yeah, to the people. Yeah, hold up, Africa. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't click the button to, to come on to speak. I was just listening, right? I know but, you um, didn't, but I can put you in the seat so you can take the heat because you're strong enough to do it. I know, I know. You, you, you like that. You like that. I could be, be brief, though, because you mentioned something about uh, earlier about what I thought about 2001. So I'm going to sit my piece and y'all can extrapolate, right? I think 2001, we did the same thing we've been doing for years. We reacted instead of acting. A lot of times we think we're acting, but we're not acting. We 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 reacted to certain stimuli, whether it's George Floyd or whether it's the Capitol building or whatever, you know. The problem with that is it's like if I was to slap you and you didn't know it was coming, you don't really much know how you're going to react. But if you knew in advance what was going to happen, you have a plan. And you'd be better to deal with it once I attack you. So that's what happened in the past. We a lot of times we think we're acting when when a lot of us get together and we are in the streets we think we're acting. But no, we've been the the enemy has slapped us first and then we react to the to the slap we got or whatever manner they choose to attack us. So that's all I wanted to say is that we need to stop reacting and um start acting. But that calls for organization and that calls for playing. And that way when we do respond, we won't be like chicken with a head cut off we have a clear direction where we're going. And that's all I have to say. And if that, 
And as the program goes on, I may have something else to say. But right now, I'm going to be very passive and listen to the program. But thanks for bringing me on. Uh, thank you, Carlos. That was a wise young man with wise information. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to start our first segment of the program. You know how we do on Africa Remove. We're going to talk about what's going on in your world and community. If you'd like to share with us what's going on in your world and community, feel free to call 323-679-0841. Hit 1 and we'll acknowledge your last one. The last four numbers. So when we come back, our political panelists and analysts are going to be in the seat, and as they define it, they're going to stand behind it. You know how we roll. So let me just ask you a question. If you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? Well, listen to this message if I had all the money in the world. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon.
them back to Africa on the moon. I don't know who set the world on fire, but I know one thing. It's going to be the Africans that are going to put out the fire. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. I would like to share a few announcements with you, and then we'll go to our segment, What's Going On In Your World and the Community. First and foremost, we would like to acknowledge also on this day, on the 9th of January in 2014, our brother Amir Baraka, formerly known as Leroy Jones, who was a writer, a poet, an activist. He made a transition on this day, as well as if you have not made your move yet, it's time to make your move right now. We want to let you know that from July the 23rd to the 31st, we want you to join the African Awareness Association as they take their annual educational black history cultural travel challenge to Cuba. That's right. They're going to show their respect and honor to our brothers and sisters in Cuba. We want to come and join, learn something, Experience with socials like experience would like to meet with your brother and sister in Cuba. Again, that date will be from July twenty third to the thirty first. For more information you can call eight oh four five four nine seven four nine two or two oh two seven one four nine four three five or visit our website which is dash Cuba, C-U-B-A Tours, C-O-U-R-S dot com. That's right. So make sure you check out and get on that get on that plane, get on that tour, be a part of that delegate. And also, if you don't, if you haven't purchased your book yet for your library, we're going to encourage you to do so now. Make sure you support Pan African Roots. They publish they publish Volume One and Two, a new book called. We demand a full disclosure and digitization of all slavery era records. For more information, please visit the site www.a-aprp.gc.org. Let me give you that website again. Address is www.a-aprp.gc. So make sure you go and visit that website and uh, and make a, per- a purchase. And it has so much information that you can learn from as relates to our enslavement and um, how they made wealth of you and who were the oppressors. And from that, once you learn about the past, you have a better understanding of the present, which you now you can make a map out for the future to alleviate your oppression. So support um, the author, Brother Brown Brown and Pan African Roots by purchasing your book. You know, our people need to read. We don't read enough. So please do that. So if you love your people, you love Mother Africa, one of the things you do, you increase your reading. So on that note, let's go back to our political panelists and analysts and get started on the segment, What's Going On in Your World Community? And if you'd like to share with us what's going on in your world community, our mic is open by calling Calling three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. Hit one, and we'll we will acknowledge your last four numbers. We'll go back to Brother Haki. We start out with you, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world in the community? Well, Brother Africa, there is a uh, group of individuals in which, for a long time, you know, I refuse to acknowledge, out of hope that somehow they would just dissipate and disappear. 
but apparently they're not. They're actually growing. But anyway, it's a group called Incels, and it's a very interesting group, and I'm talking a little bit about that. But there's a, but there's a serious uh, uh, interplay between this particular group of individuals, conservatism, and this notion in terms of seeing people as commodities. And so as we understand generally capitalism that sees everything as commodity, these people have internalized that idea, and so they see everything as commodity, particularly when it comes to women. So it's a very, very, uh, it's a very, very, um, uh, very um, dangerous position to to hold, particularly in terms of relationship with women, in terms of you know, creating a just and harmonious society. But any event, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, now capitalism penchant uh, uh, to label everything or everyone as a commodity has severe consequences for life. The commodification of human beings creates a pretext of being humans through a lens that not only establishes their view of your capitalist exchange value or what benefits that can be extracted from them, but equally as important, how much pain should be inflicted on them. In this context, a marketplace arises when value of human beings are assigned. We enforce by social political institutions that assign human value upon tradition handed down from historical precedents. Past historical precedents or past events usually entail control and subjugation of out, of out groups, in particular ethnic, gender, or, or status, sense of entitlement, and male domination, or in this context, patriarchy. The object of the marketplace is to ensure compliance while facilitating little, if any, disruption to society which threatens its foundation. The most obvious example is the implementation of racism in contemporary society, constructed specifically to maximize wealth utilized in the state's apparatus. The longevity of enslavement depended on a pseudoscience that justified abhorrent treatment of a people using socially sanctioned ideas that endured despite changes in law or improved economic conditions. Now, the inequality inflicted on non-white people did not end with the passage of civil rights laws, but persists to today. Now, claims can be made the indignities of the marketplace resonated with women lobbying for the formal institution of slavery, and such claims would be justified. While contemplating the horrendous treatment of women, one subculture comes, subculture comes to mind, and the level of hate practiced by this group is chilling, to say the least. Known as incels or involuntary celibates, this group of men, generally under 25 years of age, display an intense hatred for women or females. While Mona Atahawe, Egyptian or comedic feminist, traces a root cause of the anger directed toward women as the fear of vaginas is academically correct, the more broader factor lies in what constitutes a man in Western, in Western context. Oddly enough, there are Western economists who subscribe to the notion of a sexual marketplace. Sexual marketplace in Western construct reduces females to a duality, those desired and those not desired. In Inzel circles, the nomenclature, Stacy, attaches to beautiful females, usually blonde and curvy. Less than beautiful females are assigned the tag Becky. Many incels subscribe to the, to the belief beautiful females constitute a very small number in the population, relegating men to pursue less desirable females. Problems often arise in the minds of incels whose views often reflect a white supremacist strain. Conditions associated to believe white males are more desirable than hyper-masculine hyper Africans or Latino males or effeminate soft Asian males, the idea of being relegated Rejected by beautiful women is unfathomable. Now, before I go on, brother, one ask brother, after one thing I have to be clear, and this I'm going to have to divert briefly here. Now, it should be pointed out that the hyper-masculine archetype or the stereotype associated with African or Latin males 
define African males as more African and Latin males as more manly. Since aggression in Western context defines males as aggressive, African and Latino males are perceived as extra aggressive, which justify police shooting unarmed Latino and African males. In the case of Asians, characterizing Asian males as effeminate, or in the words of Arnold Schwarzenegger, barely men, dealing with the reality that China is number one economic power in the world is problematic for them. Unlike females, where male authority can be established by limiting access to money for females or physical and emotional abuse, these effeminates in China can either be blackmailed or bullied into compliance. Perhaps this explains the depth the U.S. is willing to go by destroying the global supply chain to get effeminate China to submit. Attempts at getting China to behave in a manner equivalent to an abused female have failed, despite the architect, as, architect assigned to them as weak males. Now back to, to the question at hand. Now even more traumatic is the perceived rejection, plain-looking females, an endeavor that should have been easier to achieve. Finding it difficult to secure females' companionship, many of the individuals resort to dehumanizing and degrading females. Characterizing females as bitches, difficulties arises from their inability to attract females and are diverted <coughs> from incels or social inadequacies and displaced onto all females. The problem is compounded when the incel individual has wealth and social standing. Typically, incels believe in the Western world money and power should ensure accessibility to female companionship. Just suppose good looks befitting of a Chad, Chad is the a, is a incels uh, lingo for a good-looking man, females should be lining up for the possibility of, date, of a date. When a female's interest does not materialize, most incels, in, most in, in most incels' minds, it's an indication females are inherently degenerate. In the case of a Canadian incel, Alex Manassian, female corruption comprised the episode of all problems between male and female. In Manassian's mind, Mass rape and genocide against females was a viable option to getting females under control. Now, the question of control is pivotal in understanding the incel movement. Pushback by incel conservatives is consistently employed to prevent progressive change. Critical race theory is an example. Characterized as a Marxist threat, the real incentive of incel conservatives is to prevent education that facilitates critical thought. In the case of women, pushback has taken the form of men's right groups and conservative male representatives pushing and narrative proclaiming Discrimination and, and oppression of males is a problem, while attempting to discredit discrimination and sexual abuse of females. In an attempt to conceal the patriarchy, their strategy reveals a terrifying undercurrent that unites far-right movements and incels. According to Klaus Kullerwitt, a scholar-writer, there is a correlation between misogyny and fascism. Women, by virtue of their sexual powers, have the power to change society. For example, in the movie of Chirac, it was revealed in Liberia, the women went on a sex strike to compare the male partners to end war. In the movie, most of the women ended all forms of intimacy until the gangs disbanded. This strategy worked, worked, worked well. Likewise, fascists recognize control of females, and to some extent, their thoughts are integral in maintaining political control. Feminism movements threatened to control and had to be oppressed or opposed. Attempts at pushing back the clock on women's progress has not ended. From attacks on Naomi Osaka, the tennis champion, to disinformation campaigns against Kamala Harris, the vice president, the power of females is greatly feared by incel conservatives. Incels, like most conservatives, are merely more vocal about their hatred for females. So I thought I'd just raise that a bit in terms of this movement that's, that's, that's very viable 
which is actually expanding, you know, throughout the world. So, so one would think when you when you have that kind of hatred uh, personified against against women, then it be possibly a pursuit of peace or justice become less much more problematic because if you can on a very fundamental un- understand the importance in terms of uh, male female relationships in terms of bringing about a better society, then obviously you'd be, you'd be hard pressed to understand the much more complex features when it comes to you know formulating peace generally in society. So clearly this question in terms of incels is something I think people have to be aware of and I find somewhat chilling. So I thought I, I thought I'd talk talk briefly about this, this particular group. So I hope people do more research on this particular group because they're expanding fast and it's, it's unfortunate. Brother Hackey, I want to ask you a quick question. Um, as I listened to your presentation just now. Uh many times when you look at men in power who who have a dis a distaste for women. Um, they tend to have tendencies and mannerisms and many times dress like that in which they hate. How do you reconcile that, that kind of behavior? Yeah, well, in, 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 in the case of the, in the incels, there, have been, there hasn't been any definitive examples of people who are actually effeminate or uh, people uh, uh, who actually hate women. They most tend to at least project this image in terms of being a, man, a manly man. You know, they project that image. Uh, mm-hmm. So to answer the question, mm-hmm. we saw difficult to do, Brother Africa. But I would say, generally speaking, uh, one of the things is that you do find, when we, particularly when you look at, for instance, corporate America, you look in terms of kind of infeminization um, 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 that takes place in corporate America. A lot of them have a, a deep hatred for women, and a lot of them do do characterize uh, these, a lot of these what we perceive as feminine traits in terms of the softness and and in terms of the the uh, uh, the meekness, those kind of things, which tend to affirmate with terms of the, the uh, uh, women, women's, uh, women's um, spirituality, if for, for lack of a better term. So I think in that context, I think in the corporate context, you're right. There are a lot of people who actually hate women, who are in fact very feminine themselves. And so, uh, in, in, in understanding that 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 that, uh, that paradox, I think to a large extent, I think that uh, people tend to that which they they. They, they, but frankly, they tend to hate that which they don't understand or that which they don't value. So, uh, so for people who, so for those men who want to emulate women, but at the same token hate women, then, then clearly, you know, there is much, perhaps much that they don't understand about women and their zeal to become like a woman. And so in that context creates a lot of anger toward women. So I suspect that may have a part of it. So that's my view on that question, Brother Africa. Thank you, my brother. Let's make a transition to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, talk to me. What's going on in your world and the community? Uh, certainly, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, there seems to be a shift uh, going on in Central and South America. It seems that those countries uh, that have had elections recently uh the voters uh voted uh for uh for uh for, for those for those political parties that were left leaning such as Honduras uh Chile uh Bolivia and uh let's see uh Argentina is still contested uh, from what I read. 
but uh it seems as uh it seems as if uh people in several countries in Central and South America are rejecting uh neocolonialism at least at the polls and uh you know and uh in order to win these types of elections it takes a high level of organization and uh so it seems as if uh the support for Cuba and Venezuela is growing throughout Central and South America and the people are expressing the sentiments uh uh at the uh at the poll at the polling places. And um uh let's see um uh, at home in Africa it seems as if uh, you know uh uh let's see uh micronationalism and uh, neocolonialism are wreaking havoc on uh, uh, on uh, on the motherland, and uh, and uh, let's see, it seems as if uh, uh, you know, with uh, you know this intensification, uh, uh, revolutionary leadership seems to be rack uh, be lacking at the present time. But uh, let's see. But um, you know, there's still time for change. But people need to be aware of what's going, more aware of what's going on at home, and uh, try to stay on top of it. Thank you, brother Anthony. We're going to brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Thank you, thank you, brother Africa. Uh, um, I've, I should take the maximum use of this space while I can. Um, I want to repeat something I, I wrote back in 80, 1985 to Bishop Tutu. The, his, his story and her it ages of apartheid in the USA. It's been correctly stated that the black skin will never be free until white skin is also free. The history of apartheid is a story of economic opportunism, and the history of apartheid is a story of denial and hatred. A thorough analysis of the sporting system of apartheid reveals that it is fascism. That is, apartheid is fascism, and fascism is the open tyranny with tyranny of finance capital. Thus, apartheid is an organization of race hatred, and this system attempts to purify one people at the cost of another. It is an unjust and evil system of death and exploitation attempting to thrive on the labor power of black workers and Anglo workers. Black freedom-loving people in the USA will continue to fight beside our Anglo freedom-loving brothers and sisters until this system of exploitation is discredited and abandoned. It is a system which attempts to divide us, leave our children without a legitimate father, and perpetuate anarchy within our family, our nation, and unleash anarchy within the government. The Free South Africa movement is chauvinist in its stand because it perpetuates the myth that apartheid has ended in the USA. It perpetuates the illusion that the people of the USA can free the people of South Africa. Certainly we expect the freedom-loving people of South Africa will do all they can do to free the USA 
yet we know that each of our struggles has its own life and must be spoiled according to the concrete and specific obstacles we face. In essence, the Free South Africa movement is an attempt to recognize that all people within the USA benefit from the super profits gained from the enslavement of black workers in South Africa. Thus, the movement is an anti-apartheid movement which correctly demands that the USA government divest now. The democratic, socialists, and communists in the USA will never stop struggling until apartheid is completely abandoned and discredited. 8th of December 1985, J. Democracy. Signed as J. Democracy because Bishop Tutu said, birds of a feather flock together. And I added, you could jaywalk. But anyway, um, that's that's what's going on in my world right now. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, talk to us. What's going on in your world and the community? Sister well, Eleanor. Well, Brother Africa, as you know, we're still struggling to uh, urge uh, Moderna and Pfizer to uh, loosen up their uh, proprietary rights on this vaccine and let any nation, any uh, pharmaceutical company on planet Earth to produce the vaccine to keep, to stop profiting off of people's lives. But also in the past year, uh, we've seen Republican lawmakers in 49 states have introduced voter suppression laws. And these Republicans in the U.S. Senate have used the Jim Crow filibuster, the black federal legislation that would protect the right to vote, to protect a woman's right to choice and so many other rights, and to stop uh, investigation, investigations into the insertion itself. These laws are sending a clear message to the white supremacists that attacked the Capitol one year ago. It, it, that Those who seek to weaken uh, our nation, survive and conquer, they seem to have allies at every level of government. That's what we observe. Uh, but this isn't a new trend at all. Conservatives at the state and local levels have worked together for over a century to limit the political power of black people with tactics ranging from poll tax and literacy tests to voter intimidation and suppression. And we see this happening again. In 2021, 19 states passed 34 laws that shortened the window for absentee voting, limiting early voting uh uh, closing poll places in black communities and instituted harsh, harsh voter ID requirements. Election officials in these states are uh, exploiting the lack of federal oversight to impose these policies that uh, disproportionately limit black voters' access to the poll and restrict their ability to elect political officials who address the needs of black people and the working class. So we see uh, that now is more important than ever that we address uh, the issues of uh, civil liberties and that we 
try to get rid of this filibuster and we can see why we're not able to address the issues that affect the nation collectively because they clearly have allies on the hill, these white supremacists. So with that in mind, uh, thank you for allowing me to uh, participate in this evening's forum. And uh, I would urge everyone to be vaccinated because I think this uh, Omicron, it may backdoor us. They say it's a milder version of the virus, but it's so much more contagious. It's overwhelming hospitals throughout the country and the medical workers as well, the doctors, the nurses, the techs, the cooks. Everyone's being overwhelmed by this uh, new Omicron version of this uh, coronavirus. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Illinois. We're going to our brother. See if he'd like to say anything about what's going on in his world and community. Our brother, 0673, we're coming back to you. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listening audience or what's going on in your world and the community? Uh, I'm going to share what's going on in my world, and I want to tackle that question that you gave Haki about. Um, yeah, the question you gave Haki. What's going on in my world is a right, right, right. I'm constant writing all the time, I'm constant researching. And I want to talk about briefly about Sidney Portier. I don't mean to prop them up like, you know, African. No, I don't mean that way. I want to prop them up because there's always a side of somebody that you don't know about. And so although I wasn't a fan of Sidney Poitier, is that when Malcolm X was assassinated, he took in their children. Now, people might not think that's, that, that that means that. It means a lot because we got people in our circle, right, I figured that if I if I got a jam, I expect you know lead brother brother Africa to come to my aid. I expect Haki to come to my aid. But someone that's named now in your circle, so a lot of times you have people that you think will come to you in a time of need, and they won't show up. And ones that you least expect to show up. So I thought it was important that Malcolm X's oldest daughter said that they saw her father's funeral from Sidney Portier's house because they took them in and they stayed with Sidney Portier's family for a couple of weeks, and which I thought that was shocking because I really wasn't a fan of Sidney Portier, but I, I, the fact that they did that, you got to put yourself in that time frame. When Malcolm was assassinated, people in his own family changed their names. People from New York came to Richmond. Um, Brother Ben Benjamin, you got um who else? You got um A. Peter Bailey, and so that that time period, nobody really wanted to associate with Malcolm X. Not that they didn't love him, but the fear of what might happen to them because if it, if he was assassinated, what may happen to someone who's associated with them? So the fact that Sidney Poitier took that family in at that particular time, I thought. That was something to bring out because that's a side of him that we don't know about. And I've also been researching uh, information about, um, based on what, what Brother Africa sent me today, more information on Armand Secretary, and I, I've been re- researching that. Now, to be brief, I'm going to go back to that question you asked, Haki. 
and why was somebody who apparently, I think your question, well, I, don't, I want to be afraid. How, how was your question? I think your question has something to do with how somebody who hates women would act a certain way. I think some 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 to that effect, right? In a board to mind. Yeah, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, brother, brother Kevin, there's a tendency many times of men in power who take a position, a position of anti-women and disrespect women. Um, they also sometimes have a tendency to have mannerism and look like they want to act like a woman or, or, or behave like a woman and have women tendencies and trying to figure out how do you reconcile uh, uh, gotcha. that, gotcha. that, that, now, I might be off What came to mind was, I think it was Leopold and Lowe at 20th century. Leopold and Lowe is one of the famous famous murderers at 20th century. They're from a wealthy family. And the question was, you're from a wealthy family, you got it all going on, why would you kill this guy? And the summation was, they want to be godlike. Says human beings, we got rules, we, we abide by. Certain moral rules we buy by some things just, especially the African community. Some things just we consider abnormal. We wouldn't do we wouldn't do certain things. But their 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 thing was that to be godlike, you don't have rules. Whatever man says that is wrong, they was going to do. So if murder was wrong, they could murder. If homosexual was wrong, they could do be homosexuals. And so they had got to that mindset that whatever rule society had, they was going to break. <laughs> you know what I mean? So a lot of times it's necessary that it's, it's, it's a hatred for women. You just want to have ultimate power, and you want to do everything that that mere men had to buy by. You you ain't buying by. So it could be something to, to that effect. So I don't really know for sure. But a lot of men throughout society, especially in the West, that they left up as being real he-men, especially in Hollywood, they actually were um, homosexuals. So, you know, it's just one of those things. They just want to some of these do things that they, they can do it. It could be one of those situations. That's all I have to say. They sound like they say absolute power, absolute corrupt. But anyway, high key other panelists, you want to weigh in on the issue that my brother just raised. Start with your high key. Oh, you mean the earlier question in terms of being proactive? That question? Um, keep on. State your position again. Oh, no. I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't. Against anything that Haki said in reference to your question, right? Your question was, why do some people seemingly um, hate women, right? But at the same time, they act like they're manlike. And I was saying, Leopold and Lowe's position, they're very wealthy. And so why would they kill? Why would they do anything? And the, and the summation of it was that they want to be all powerful, like God. And whatever rules the society say you got to abide by, they was going to break. So you ain't supposed to kill, they was going to kill. A man not supposed to be with another man, they was going to do that. You know, so <laughs> they they were just, you know, wanting to be above mere men and break all the rules because for their possession, they said God would be all in all. So in men rules that was for men, 
they weren't gonna have those rules. They were gonna break anyway. So my position just was not necessarily they anti women, right? They 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 just wanted to be uh, above mere men and do everything that men said they are not supposed to do. They was gonna break it. So that's all my place. Kind of off base, but I was thinking about Leopold Lowe when you asked that question, right? Because the question was, why would you do that? Why would somebody who's worth millions of dollars, right, do so low as to kill someone? And they did it for that simple reason. They could do it. Yeah, that well that's that that's it's a that's an interesting analysis, uh, Brother Kevlon. That's a very interesting analysis. And mm-hmm. certainly from a, um, a mythological perspective, I certainly could see that. But one of the problems mm-hmm. I think is that, uh, you know, one of the things is that when you talk about something like sex, which is a natural drive, uh, the biological imperative, which is to, you know, is to procreate or, or, or you know, or to interact with women. Uh, that doesn't mean that somehow uh, the imperative, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't play out. Uh, something in situations where, where for whatever reason, um, biochemically speaking, um, men, you know, in the uterus of no, of no, I mean, by no, by no stretch of imagination, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're in fact the cause of the situation. But you have a situation where in utero a lot of times where things biochemically go wrong, and so you have a man who comes out who maybe have an infinity in terms of other men, and so therefore the certainly is not there, or a woman who has infinity for another woman. So it's certainly not. Uh, it's certainly not their, 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 it's not their desire to do so. That is something that's, that's biologically programmed into them. But I think the problem is that when you talk about guys who are feminine and they had this hatred of women, so it, to me, you know, that's, that, that is a different, different paradox because I think essentially what is happening is that when you talk about, you know, for instance, when you talk about a situation where people hate, hate African people, men they're known African people, but they hate African people, he said, "Damn! How do you hate something that you don't even that you, you know, hate someone you don't even know?" Uh, often, there's there's a desire, there's this understanding, this belief that in fact that uh, African people symbolize something that other people want, as opposed to saying, "Hey, man! I hey, you know, you 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 all, I respect blah 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 blah." It comes off as it comes across as as anger or or rejection, um, and so it and so it comes across as well. I want to be anything other than an African person. And the reason being is because, you know, really, you know, that, uh, that, 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 that kind of, that, that desire in terms to, to emulate or to be like an African person uh, is something in which, you know, uh, in the heart of hearts, I think in their subconsciousness, I think they understand, you know, uh, that in, in embracing in terms of something being special about African people, you know, I mean, there's something inferior about me or something not quite right about me. And so, therefore, it's much easier to simply hate in the post acknowledge, you know what, I like blah, 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 blah about, your, about your people. So I think when sexuality is a similar thing, so guys who, who, who act them in it but hate women, women it's perhaps it's, maybe it's because, you know, these, these women possess a quality in which they want to desperately emulate in which they can't. And that, was, that resulted in a lot of anger, a lot of aggression toward women, simply because, it's, it's simply because well, it's a displaced kind of aggression, Simply because they can't be, you know, what they perceive as ideal. So I think that's perhaps maybe the the, the, the psychological uh, motivation behind, you know, guys who are feminine but they hate women, who want to act like a woman but hate women at the same token. 
So I think that has a lot to do with it in terms of, you know, this, this propensity. And you're right. And, and when you talk about the West, there's a lot that goes on in the West. And it's very interesting, very, very, very interesting. It's not to say that you don't have that in other cultures around the world. I mean, I'm sure, of course you do. But the whole point that is so pronounced in the West, and to what, to, to what extent does capitalism play in terms of its hatred toward women? Uh, you, you see what I'm saying? To what extent does the kind of insanity that people have to live under capitalism, to what extent does that kind of insanity uh, impacts the woman while she's carrying that baby in utero, causing that baby biochemically, you know, to make, you know, genetic to, to bring about these 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 changes because of the kind of uh, uh, very volatile situation that that that, that parent that mother uh, finds herself, herself subjected to. So it's a very very interesting question. So, but that's my view of that. Not close to that. Anybody else would like to respond to that? Yes, uh, I would. I think uh, uh, one of the sources of the exploitation of one human being by another comes from patriarchy, which is uh, a a system in which which is male-dominated. And uh, one of the factors that brought down uh, communalism in a lot of places in the world was when uh, was when uh, the value of a man's labor became more valuable than a woman's labor. Not that they were ever the same. But under communalism, uh, the woman's labor was equally as valuable to the functioning of society as a man's labor. It is only when uh, these societies started producing more than what they needed for their day-to-day survival, in other words, producing surpluses, that a man's labor became more valuable than a woman's labor. And that is what started the oppression of women by men. And uh, this is a very ancient phenomena, and uh, it took place over a long period of time. But that, uh, but that is when it started, and uh, some human beings uh, took it to the level where they hated women. But uh, but uh, patriarchy ultimately gives rise to capitalism. You know, going back to high key opening statement that he made, I would like to have a little discourse because um, it's just amazing how ungrateful these people in the system is when it comes to African people. African people in this country continue to save these so-called uh, political uh, officials, i.e. Bill Clinton, Hen Clinton, uh, what's the guy the president, president of this country now? Um, Biden, Joe uh, Biden. They continue, right? They continue to say these, the dishonest, corrupt, unprincipled politicians, who have none of the African community interests at heart. 
we can say that it has that history. We can look at his recent um, so-called uh, trillion-dollar proposal to get this country back on track again. When you look at the allocations of the money and stuff, everybody gets something out that deal, out that deal for African people. But with the African people responsible for playing the major role of him first being able to get the nomination and elected him. And he have done nothing for African people. Well, he have done some for them. He created other policies to oppress African communities and people more. But anyway, in terms of the statement Brother Hockey made, it is clear that according to so-called analysts from their perspective, that the so-called so-called Republican Party could win the upcoming election. And seeing like the behavior that Haki just articulated about Hillary Clinton, um, criticizing these, these these non-European women about their policies and their interests would be the cause of them losing. That's, again, another reason why they always find reasons to constantly blame African people when they don't win, no matter what they do. It's another disrespect being disrespectful and unappreciative of our people. And I don't know why we continue to understand that the Democratic Party is the enemy to African people here and abroad. Panelists, your response? Yes, I think it's because uh, a lot of Africans don't understand our history. Uh, And because we don't understand our history, a lot of people don't remember that the Democratic Party was the party of the slaveocracy. Every, almost every uh, 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 president during the 19th century was a mem- that was a member of the Democratic Party had some ties to chattel slavery. That's often forgotten. And uh, and also, uh, when uh, Africans got the right to vote, a majority of the of, the, uh, of those that were able to do so voted Republican. Up until uh, the nineteen uh, thirty, uh, when uh, Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt campaigned on the Democratic ticket. Then it shifted, and that is because uh, Roosevelt was given credit for getting the U.S. out of the Great Depression. And uh, Africans that were able to vote have tended to vote Democratic since that time. Anyone else yeah. want to say Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well, but go ahead, go ahead, keep on. Yeah, uh, both parts against us, and the brother just spoke just now. He just co-signed some of that. Tony, I look at Tony Brown's journal today. I didn't finish looking at it. It says something about a black people tricked to to go against the Republican Party, and in Tony Brown's journal, you know, Tony Brown was Republican, right? Well, Africans were Republican Party originally. Then, like the brother just mentioned, now we switched to Democratic Party. And and then when um, Johnson came in, we passed a whole lot of things that solidified it. 
So now we stuck on automatic ballot now. We just automatic vote Democrat. I don't take the position that the Democratic Party is sticking African people. I take the position that both of them are. We, 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 we got, they're two sides of the same coin. Republicans can get the uh, wealthy who are smaller in number of large and capitals. A Democrat can get the poor people who are large in number of smaller in capital. And you put them together, you call it Demo-Republican. Two sides of the same, same coin. And so they both, they're both sticking us. And we never, at no point do we say, you know, that why not go somewhere else, you know, or, or quit our own party or whatever, right? So I, I can't object to, to we thinking that one party is sticking. Now, they need one of them in our best interest, right? Uh, they both might give you a little something, and, and then, but they, they do far more harm than they, than they, they, they do good. But the brother who mentioned just now, he said the same thing on Tony Brown Jr. It's, it, it's, it's, it's like, um, I didn't listen to the whole tape, but I pretty much know the history. It was Republicans because of Lincoln. And they became Democrat, um, what the brother just mentioned, I think he said, was it, was it um, Roosevelt? Delano Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, and then and then it was solidified with Johnson. When, when, when Johnson came along, he did... He was able to pass a lot of things that Kennedy was trying to get passed and couldn't. But anyway, so we've been stuck in the Democratic Party ever since Johnson. So no matter, it's like the Democrats can't do wrong. <laughs> and that's a problem with that. So, so like I said, I mentioned earlier, Ray, we think we're acting, but we're acting. <laughs> and and, and um, both of them are sticking us. So I don't want to hog, hog, hog up the program, but let Haki go now. Yeah, well, you know, a couple of things. Uh, first, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of political education as a people we have to have, and that is a very difficult discussion to have because a lot of us really believe that there are no alternatives, that the only real alternative for African people is the Democratic Party. And to some extent, I understand that because when you look in terms of the Republican discourse, uh, one thing is very clear. If Republicans is the party of business, then in, in, in terms of profitability, where in which you maximize profit, profitability is to employ discrimination. So who you discriminate against? Certainly you discriminate against poor people, but specifically you discriminate against African people simply because you have a long history which says discrimination against African people is justifiable, particularly in the pursuit of profits. So clearly there is there's no real incentive for African people to support the Republican Party. But this brings me to my second point. The only, the only, as Brother Kibalan said, the only real alternative for our people is the uh, independent party. Now, the whole point in terms of questions, people will ask, well, so what, what is the relevance in terms of a third party is only going to uh, uh, undermine our cause? Well, the problem is that what we have to do, we need institutions. So we can create a third party, even if that means that don't formally share the, 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 the quarters of power in, in, the, in the formal sense. What it does mean is that as a people that we become organized and we begin to understand the gravitational issues. And if we can do that, then it empowers us to work in our own community to do those kind of things for ourselves that we have to get done. See, right now we're sitting around thinking that somehow that these, these parties are, give a damn about African people and that they're going to solve our problems. It's, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. At 150 years, I mean, it's not going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. There's no incentive for either party, which is, which is, which is Malcolm say two sides of the same coin, there is no incentive for either party to do a damn thing because we've got to understand one thing. African people represent an oppressed minority in the society. When you look at the history of African people, 
despite the accomplishments of African people, despite the education levels of African people, uh, despite the levels that they achieve in terms of educationally, despite their willingness to play the game, despite all of that, we still come up short. So you got to ask yourself that under those, you know, un, under that rubric where you where you systematically disadvantage, what sense does it make to continue to play ball with an institution which is diametrically opposed to the interests or even the survival of African people? It doesn't make sense to me. But African people argue, no, 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 we got to go to the Democratic Party. A third party will just undermine, you know, undermine our, you know, our ability to get in power. Well, the problem is that even if the Democrats get in power, the question is, what tangible results do the African community accrue? None. But there are no benefits. There are no benefits. Even when Barack Obama had a Democratic Congress, what, what, what? Let me tell you something. The moment, remember when that police officer went into Skip Gates, the professor at Harvard University, went to his home, rest the man in front of his own house, disrespected that man in front of his own house. And all he had to do to verify that man's residence was one call or two, walk in the man's house and look at the pictures and see this man, this is this man's home. Where he said how, how absurd, how stupid that was, they came at him. You see how quickly Barack Obama gave in, how quickly he gave in, and that, was a, that, was a, that issue was gone. There was no more discussion on that issue. Because he understood in order for him to have that power, he has to play by their rules. The power that he exercised has nothing to do in terms of the interest or the betterment of African people. God damn, we got to understand that fundamental point. What, is, what does it take? How much suffering do we have to endure before we, we get it? How much do we have to... How, how, anyway, let me calm down. Let me calm down. Brother Anthony, you got to help me out here. You got to calm me down, man. I go off like that. No, uh, hey, brother, I, I, brother, I, 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 you may, I got some I two answers. Two. But uh, what I want to add to that, and this will make you calm down, is remember... The point I made earlier about a lot of us don't know our history. If uh, if the ma- if the majority of us knew our history, we would know that the Democratic Party does not care about us. But because we don't know our hi- now, we uh, a lot of us are clearer on the Republican Party. But uh, but because we've forgotten that the Democratic Party was the party of the slaveocracy, we don't realize that the Democratic Party doesn't really give a damn about us either, only to the extent that they can use us. And uh, what we need, and uh, Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton pointed this out over 50 years ago, we need to be organized in our own independent political organization. That's what we're lacking. And that's why we're disrespected everywhere, because we're not but organized. You, but, you know, but you know, Brother Anthony, one of the things that's very interesting, because when you look at former, former Republicans like um, uh, Representative uh, Oklahoma, uh, J.C. Watts, he spent something like 13 years trying to get the Republicans to embrace the idea in terms of supporting Africans in the Republican Party. He found out, it took him 13 years to find out, that they have no interest whatsoever. Even when he proposed rudimentary ideas, something as simplistic as, listen, let's get rid of this formula to fund schools, and let's have a formula where schools are funded equally across the board so we have a situation where rich districts are fund schools are are, are funded, you know, immensely, 
where poor school districts don't get any funding at all, which means that the kind of books, the kind of equipment kids need, they don't have access to. So let's get rid of that system and, and have one which across the board, whether you're in the city, the rural part, or the sub- suburbs, that kids have access to quality education. They say, hell no. Why would we do that? Our kids can't come. Listen, our kids got an advantage. We're not going to give up advantage, you know, for the, for the interests of these, of, these, of these African children. We're not going to do that. It it's, took them 13 years to figure that out. Let me let me conclude. Let me just conclude. Oh, brother. Yeah, brother yeah, yeah. Let me, let me conclude. Yeah. Brother, how you say something profound, right? He incorporated um economic component. See, I, I don't separate economics from, from, from politics. They're interrelated. They're inter, interdependent. Now, Agreed. I don't like people saying the Republican, the independent party don't have a chance. Perot was leading Bush and Clinton. But yeah, leading Bush and Clinton. He was ahead. If you look historically, right, the Republican Democrats, when they get an independent candidate strong, they come together, beat them up, and then, it, and then once he gets out, then they, then they, then they go back and argue one another, right? Perot's leading, but then they attacked his daughter. The guy has to get out. But most independent candidates are very wealthy because what happens is, in order for an independent candidate to go to win, you got to go door to door, get so many signatures, you get so much money, right? Republican Democrats, you might not call it monopoly. They automatically get money. You have to go to the door, though. All you do is get on a Republican ticket or a Democrat ticket, and you have to go to the door, though, and you'll be in. But independent candidates got to go door to door, and they got to get money. But all the strong independent candidates already had money. Forbes, Parole, um, NATO, they already had money. So when Haki added a point about economics, right, and we have economic program together, then we would have enough, you know, money and our situation so that we can have a strong independent candidate to go against. The reason we don't have an independent candidate to go against them right now is because they got this thing straight so that you have to have money in order for each state to recognize you, to know who you are, and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on, so on, so right. So there's... So that's the economic component in there. We don't want to separate them. But yes, I don't want to ever say we have a we can't we can't a strong independent candidate can't win because there have been independent candidates that came very close. We have to observe and, and really analyze why they lost. And so that's what happened in Perot. Go back and look at it. Perot was leading. As a matter of fact, Perot was on the debate <laughs> with them. Everyone said he won the debate, and he was winning. And then something I forgot I, I don't recall I can't remember right now but something had to do with his daughter they was gonna bring out and he didn't want that to come out so he backed out it ain't like they kicked his hand pass I think he backed out so so I don't want to have a mindset that strong independent candidate can't win because we have economic program together then that carries on to our political agenda because it's hard to imagine a big corporation is not having uh, influence on uh, um, um, certain public policy, right? It's also hard to imagine a people who have no money, right? It's having influence on on public policy. So everything got to do with money right now. You know, when you run for president, it takes a lot of money to run for president, and that's because you're trying to appeal to people all over the different areas of things like that. So it's an economic point, but I don't want us to have a mindset because you're going independent. The independent candidate don't have a chance to win. We'll, no, that's not true at all. Actually, I agree with you, but the same brother don't. Let me respond to Brother Keeblon real quickly. Sure. 
here's the thing. Here's the thing in terms of independent candidates, and we in our analysis we can't be simplistic. We got to understand every time we make a move, people in power make a move. So if you think that they're going to sit down there and allow independent party to see power in the society, then I think we're being a bit disingenuous. I think the thing we have to understand is that in terms of you know what we're trying to achieve, we understand. You know, uh, if we're sincere in terms of, you know, making an independent candidate viable, then not only we have to, as a community, raise the money to support them, but we also have to make sure that we have people in place in terms of fighting, actively fighting against the system to at very least expose the system. But more importantly, for us, I think it's a win-win because I think what we have to understand that the independent party doesn't represent an independent party per se. It represents the ability of African people to actually do things for ourselves. That's the magic of it. That's the beauty of it. You see what I'm saying? So whether or not they conspired to prevent an independent party member from becoming, you know, in positions of power, that's fine. But it won't stop the, 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 the understanding among the African community that their power in terms of working together to achieve things that group for ourselves is, 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 exists. So that's the only point that I'm making. I'm not saying, but I, 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 all I'm saying is that we've got to be clear that when we fight this battle, when we talk about strategy and tactics, Everything we do is going to be countered. Don't you think for one second that they're not countering what we do in the afternoon on the move? You've got to believe that. <laughs> you better believe that. Don't, don't, don't be deceived. Don't, um, listen, I'm not, I'm, listen, I keep it real. But, I give you, I give you candor. You know, I, I, I tell you, I give it real. Don't think for one second that what we do is not being countered. Because it is. Not just by American newspapers, by paper, Western, Western press, in particular the U.K., Make no mistake about what, what, it. A lot of things I could tell you. A lot of things I could tell you about what they're doing, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that because if I did that. Yeah. I'd be doing their job. But understanding that everything we do is going to be countered, we have to fundamentally understand the reality. So we talk about independent party. We have to understand that. Listen, we sh- don't become disillusioned simply because our people don't get positions of power. We understand that we win because now we don't tell our people. Listen, by us working together, enough that we can achieve for ourselves. That's my view. Is Eleanor, Brother Moses, any thoughts on what you heard so far? Well, um, the 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 brother Aki, brother Anthony, and the brothers are right in that uh, there's nothing that uh, we we've gained per se. But the bottom line is right now we are facing something that we haven't faced before, and that's totalitarianism. We know, for example, that uh, Liz Cheney had a perfect voting record as far as the Republicans were concerned. She was pro-oil, anti-choice, and pro-gun. However, uh, Trump, who is a a totalitarianist, he uh, wants to take away whatever civil liberties people have in general. So we should seize this as an opportunity to organize the masses in our individual communities. And as Kwame Ture said, you know, uh, in order for the whites to be free, they're going to need to have, uh, organize it within their own community organize them and unite them. We can't go in their community and change them, but we can change ourselves. And we can't start with a a faulty foundation. We got to tear it down and rebuild it. And that's where we're at right now. 
and this elimination of these voter these voter suppression laws were intended to stop voters. So all you're saying is right. But why did you, why 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 do these states want to suppress the voters now? You know, panelists, uh, I would just put this question out there, but not for you to discuss, but just to think about it in the context of the discussion. Why is it every 20 years you got to have an amendment in this country mm-hmm. for African people to have the right to vote? If African people are citizens by the Constitution, what is this thing every 20 years? It's the debate to have to pass the legislation for the right to vote. Think about that. I'll put this on right here. When we come back, we're going to make a transition to this very theme, which is corruption, power, and race come together. But listen to this particular message as it relates to this conversation we were just having. Should be covered. You'll be patient. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop 
any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Never changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last. Stop going through these changes We must prepare and learn how to care For soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey. Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters. From Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip 
Hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Passport Rev, Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon the Legend. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it This integration been disintegrating Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation His last speech got him assassinated Black business was booming, it wasn't just a consumer Controlling our narrative, we have more marriages And see what the damage did, they ain't that bad a bitch And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery I'll never be an agent, I don't care what they paying me Seemed like Nip had the same old story If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery Supremacy and go the extent to keep their history alive All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive Who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler Trying to fear people of that low vibe structure Agree to disagree and we ain't gotta tear our own down Argue in silence, or forever be our own down All I wanna say is that we're giving it away Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our faith Right behind doors, but don't ever show our face Cause if Mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling 
spill ignorance and do the snow then Where we going? Cause your mom had Twitter And Malcolm had Twitter It be our own people do the trolling Spewing ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new I said, what if we been lied to, most of our freaking lives Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right Your arrogance precedes you, what if your faith did I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me A man lay dead in the street today I must have hung my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have bumped my head, and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Uh, we were discussing many issues, and right now what we want to do uh, deal with our theme tonight, which is corruption, power, and race come together. Look at all these forces come together, and we're going to just discuss a little bit from some of the very interesting videos. We had a chance to go to YouTube and look at it, and one of them was a video that featured this football player uh, who recently was, they say he was cut, but still not clear in terms of his status, but you may know him as Antonio Brown. He played wide receiver for a football team called the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, recently, um, as of last week, he was actually playing in the football game and doing a football game. He all of a sudden um, took off his football equipment walk out of the field, walk in, walk out, out of the football stadium and say he was finished. Of course the narrative was you have was that there was a African football player who's out of control and he had a history of doing things contrary to the injury of the system and he was, you know, continuing just to have a so called bad behavior. So anyway one of the things that came out from this so far from this particular incident is that one, while on the football field, the coach told him that he was finished to leave 
And that's what he did. Matter of fact, the coach mentioned that he was cut. Now, what they didn't say was that Antonio Brown told the coach that he would have a pain in his ankle, which they knew because prior to that week, for at least two weeks or so, getting treated on the ankle. And they knew that he had problems in the ankle because they injected him with a pain shot. And the medicine that they used for the pain shot were medicines that was against the interest of the National Football Player Association because they said that medicine was not good for human beings to create problems. So anyway, he left and told the coach, you know, he complained no more. And so they say he quit on the team. Well, the next day, there was a statement that he released saying that his ankle was dealing with the reality of a bone being broke and cutting his tendons down in that leg that were causing so much pain. And he went to one of the specialists, one of the top specialists, in a hospital in New York. And this was the same hospital that later on the football team wanted him to go to, but under another doctor, a doctor who had less qualification. So the point is, looking at that dynamic, Brother Anthony, when we talk about this issue of corruption, the issue of power and race, they all come to one. What did you take for that particular phenomenon, um, Brother Anthony? The mic is yours. Yes. Uh, what I took from uh, this video of uh, uh, the analysis of the Antonio Brown incident is that uh, he had an injury, a very serious injury, that his coach was aware of. And um, uh, he, the coach, who was a European, wanted him to play through this injury. And uh, when uh, Antonio Brown refused to go back into the game, uh, uh, the coach... Uh, Bruce Arians said he was cut, and uh, and uh, you know made uh, made a, a cutting symbol uh, uh, across uh, across his neck, and so in response, Antonio Brown uh, did not want to wear anything that identified him as a buccaneer so he took off his football equipment and stormed out of the stadium and uh the reason why uh um uh, antonio brown uh you know has a reputation for bad behavior is because of incidents he's had in the past including faking information on a vaccination card uh, for COVID-19. And uh, so uh, uh, the media uh, and uh, and the team had, it, had its spin on it, but it wasn't until 
uh, Antonio Brown told his side of the story that uh, that it came, became a case uh, a case of labor exploitation. In other words, a situation in which uh, uh, you know uh, a worker is forced to go back to work even though he's in no condition to work, according to him. Okay. Brother Hackey, your response to the video? Very respectful, Antonio Brown. One of the things, let's just get this up, up front. Uh, one of the things we had to understand, in the society, particularly um, among the uh, pro-capitalist mindsets that exist out there. This is this belief that because money defines who you are, that you tolerate any abuse in order to get that money. So for that mindset, for, for Tony Brown, there's simply no choice. His job was to play football despite his injuries. And so in that context, it's very easy for the media to paint him as a bad guy because people who out there who believe that money defines human beings, that if you get enough of it, you should tolerate any kind of abuse. Uh, more apt to believe, you know, that, uh, you know, that Tony or Tony Brown is in fact the problem. Now, having said that, you know, one of the things, there's a book that the brother uh, William Roden uh, wrote called $40 Million Slave. He said one of the things that, you know, uh, oftentimes um, uh, athletes get confused. Uh, they often think that that, that, that their job as an athlete defines them as a human being. Antonio Brown is different. He understands that what he does doesn't find him as a human being. As such, when he makes a statement, I'm a football player, football does not define me. What he's saying is that given the injuries, you know, long after this game is over, I got to live. And so, therefore, I have to make prudent choices right now. I can't, I can't go here and risk further injury because I have a, I'm young. I got a long life ahead of me. Well, the coaches, Coach Erlinger's position was that the hell with your injury. You get out there and you you get out there and you perform. I don't care about your injury. You know we'll we'll deal with that later. You know, so the whole point is that so when, so the, the relevance when it comes to the forty million dollar slave reference is that Bruce Arians' position was that listen, you know, you get paid a lot of money, you know, because you know you do what we tell you to do. You don't think independently. We tell you what to think. And so I think so in particular when he made the motion like a cut like a cut across his neck, like I just cut you off. When he made that motion, I'm sure that must have antagonized Antonio Brown to no, ex- to no extent. Because the whole point of you're a grown man and some guy telling you what he's going to do to you and then make the motion like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this, this, I'm going to do this to you with this sync, with this, with this, with this movement. Um, so, I, so I think clearly, you know, um, Antonio Brown was justified in terms of doing what he had to do. Uh, I think that important that he, the fact that he understands that football doesn't define him as a man. I think it's important because, you know, uh, he sets an example, you know, for other young athletes who come along who understand, you know, that this, this whole, this whole, this whole, um, uh, this whole paradigm where, where, where players are treated, you know, as, 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 as shadow, you know, as, as shadow slavery has to come to an end. So I think someone has to take a stand and say, listen, you know, I'm a man first, I'm a football player second. So I think that, that, that in fact epitomizes, you know, Antonio Brown stands. So certainly I support him, and I certainly hope all right-thinking people out there would understand, you know, that no amount of money qualify any human being to treat another human being like a racehorse. 
So I certainly hope people get that get get the point uh, that Otonio Brown was trying to articulate. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Let's go to Brother Moses. See if you have any thoughts on it, Brother Moses. Your thoughts on the situation. Um, this, you're talking about this Gilbert Arenas thing? Well, not Gilbert Arenas. We're talking about Antonio Brown, the football player, who walked off the football field because he was hurt. Oh, he was right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. You have any thoughts on that? Well, he said he was fired first. And, you know, he, he was just making it his move, uh, and uh, but the you know the coaches already fired him and uh, and you know he was this it was uh, that's his story sticking to it. Uh, I don't know these sports people in these arenas, these different uh, professionals have having their problems and uh, um, it's a result of we live in an uneven and uh, unequal equally. Uh, equitable society, and uh, I mean these these are all manifestations of that. And I, I just I don't know what else to say. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. This is really Eleanor. Based on what you heard, you yeah, have anything you'd like to contribute to this phenomenon of football players well, being forced well, to play against their own interests? We already know that these athletes are. Uh, uh, exploited workers and that as brother Robert said he was fired straight up and he just uh, uh, he was terminated so he walked off the field and uh, what else could you expect a terminated employee to do and uh, that's about it uh, they're, they're underpaid uh, they, uh, they don't have strong unions and strong worker organizations, so they are uh, at the hands of the coaches and the owners. Dr. Chabla, you would like to make any comments based on what you heard and your take on this phenomenon? Well, I haven't been far in football, but I've heard enough of the conversation that I can extrapolate from what y'all are saying. And um, Colin Kaepernick pretty much summed it up in that movie he did. He says like on a slave auction block, and they don't care anything about you. You just you just, uh, just a product, and just like you do um, scratch and dent when you're injured, it's considered it's called scratch and dent. You see them out there to still scratch and dent on Westmoreland Avenue, you know. So um, it, it pretty much sums up what. Colin Powell said, uh, not Colin Powell, Colin Kaepernick said in the movie, but people got upset when he said it, right? He said, when you first joined the camp, they start looking at your teeth and your body, you know, you, it's just like, you know, you're on a, on the uh, slave auction box to see the value of your worth. And so um, the brother got injured, so he, he's not valued as much as he had if he was, he was whole again. So they'll find some have a discreet way to get rid of you, right? But so that's pretty much what happened. But like I said, I haven't met far in, but based on what you what I've heard so far, you can pretty much get out of what happened. So he was injured, so they had to find some clever way to get rid of him. That's interesting, Brother Cabalon. You said they'll find some kind of way 
uh, reason to get rid of you. And as of this past week, they claim they have officially cut him. But how do you cut a football player who got injured on your watch when he was playing and his leg is is totally damaged? There seemed to be a violation, so I would think it's some kind of labor law. And on top of that, panelists, I'd like for y'all to respond to how much did race play into this whole scenario in terms of how it has been played out and being rejected? Brother Haki, Anthony, the rest of the panelists. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, this is this is America. Let us not deceive ourselves into believing that race doesn't have any relevance when it comes to um, you know uh, employee employee relationships. It always does. Uh, one of the things the NSL, NFL has a long history in terms of when white athletes are injured, they allow the white athletes time to recuperate. When African injuries, uh, when African uh, athletes are injured, then you know you play. Uh, it doesn't matter. I remember uh, Mercury Mars. Uh, you know, it was after playing through severe injuries because he was mandated to play. Uh, currently, he doesn't have any ligaments in his knees at all. It's on bone on top of bone, so he's in constant pain. So the so this so this lack of concern, you know, for the health or, or the well-being uh, of, of African athletes, is couched in race, and uh, there's no getting around that. Uh, one of the things that there's, there's 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 no argument to be had that when a man is injured, when his when his when his when his bone is cut into his tendons, to mandate that he play. Now, either you're you're um, uh, um, you're you're a masochist, or I mean a sadist. Or you just have no human decency whatsoever in your in your in your, in your consciousness would would compel you to even ask an athlete under those circumstances to go play. You see, because I think for the coach, his primary concern was you know listen me being compensated, and of course the more he wins, the more dollars and cents. So in that in that context, the health of Antonio Brown wasn't wasn't an issue. The issue for him was to make some money. And when it comes, when when, and specifically so, when it comes to making money at the expense of African athletes, these coaches have no problem at all doing that. Uh, so clearly, brother Africa, I think that you can't dismiss this, this whole this, uh, the racial dynamic in terms of you know how these athletes are treated you know in these professional arenas, particularly when it comes to NFL football. So I think race did play some role in terms of the uh, decisions made by the organization to 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 to, uh, to get rid of him despite his 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 uh, being injured. Uh, so I think race did play somewhat of a part in that. Anthony, yes, I would add that uh, uh, race played a factor in his treatment by the media. And uh, and also, uh, you know, what uh, whatever decisions he might have made career-wise in the past uh, might have, uh, you know, uh, gotten him in, in, into trouble with the media also. But, uh, you know, but uh, there is, um, uh, let's see, um, uh, Africans are so – as in most areas of labor, are subject to an unfair double standard. <laughs> they are expected to play or work through their injuries, whereas Europeans, European uh, workers, given a break, or they're given, uh, uh, you, you know, or desk more concern 
express for the uh you know for their physical condition and uh and this double standard is a holdover from the days of chattel slavery as uh, brother haki correctly alluded to and uh and uh it, and uh it's something we have to fight against but we can only wage that fight if we are organized as a people so once again it comes down to the uh to the organization and the power of the worker but they only have any power if they're organized brother moses What fact do you think race has played in terms of how the incident has played out? We go with Brother Moses and Sister Eleanor. Yeah, um, um, the race, um, it's, it's hard to get um, get beyond the existential fact that, you know, we have a, a African and a, and a European and, um, and we live in a racist society and a, with white supremacy and and so you know there are all the connotations are already there uh how specifically it played itself out uh, uh i don't i i think uh, the the brother was was uh trying to make get attention attention because he felt like i think he felt like you know, it would just be taken for granted, and uh, so that's why he did what he did. And so, as you know, we live in a racist society, uh, so I'm sure race is a factor. <laughs> Thank you. You do Clearly, in these uh, in the NFL and these uh, these mega sports, race is a factor in how the players are. Uh, Viewed how they're paid, and uh, um, I'm gonna um have to sign out for this evening, Brother Africa. Okay. Um, but definitely it uh, does play a factor. Uh, and, um, say have a good evening, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you. You can say something, uh, brother. Keep along your thoughts on the issue of race as it relates to this factor, how it played out. Here's racism. Here's racism before this infraction, right? Because there's a brother who lacked power went to marriage with someone who had power. Because once you sign that contract, it's a marriage. He went into the relationship lacking power with one who has power. I think it's going to be an equitable relationship when the person he had a contract with at any time, it might not be that year, it might not be to five years or ten years, at any time that person who had the power had the ability to do whatever they wanted to do when they wanted to do. So this infraction is just a manifestation of what was to come. But the racism took place a long time ago when he signed the contract. So... Yeah, you know, I think somebody's going to be just, but they're not going to be just. Mm-hmm. 
how does we interest when you look at the structure of the institutional football sports in general? Uh, still has that antebellum type of um, setting. You know, you had the Africans doing the hard labor work. You had the coaches who are predominantly Europeans giving orders and telling you what you should do, how to do it, even though they weren't able to do it. And then you had the owners sitting back in their luxury box, eating and enjoying life and watching you entertain them. Do y'all see a parallel between the institution of slavery and how sports is run today, Brother Hockey? That's not just sports. That's all That's all your jobs. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, true. true that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> you're, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. When you saw Antebellum South, you're absolutely correct. I mean, that's precisely what it is. Those those relationships, uh, those historical um uh, colonial relationships that existed in the time they brought our ancestors over to this country uh, to today persist. And uh, we, we, we shouldn't be deceived about that. And so when you look in terms of the kind of, the, the kind of severity of the kind of injuries that these football players endure, and you think in, in monetary terms they can pay relatively little in terms of the kind of pain they have to endure. But then you contrast that with the so-called positions of, of where you have the thinkers, you have mostly white, white people who, as you, as you alluded to, can't play the game themselves, but they can coach it. Uh, then you have, the, of course, the, 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 the masters, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the plantation owners, sending, the, sending their luxury boxes, you know, living a good life, you know, living, the, living you, know, you, know, 90, you know, 90 years, 100 years, and so forth and so on, you know, never having to endure the kind of pain these guys conducted to on a daily basis. So clearly that kind of antebellum, that kind of colonial relationship uh, uh, exists. Paradigm is not going anywhere but Africa until unless we're, unless we're organized. And, uh, you know, we, we have some kind of problem in terms of fighting back. But I think, but I think also to a large extent that we have to reject this notion that money defines human beings. As long as we have that notion that money defines human beings, then, then subjugation or exploitation of people can always be justified. So you have a situation where people don't feel sorry for Antonio Brown because he's making a, a decent amount of money as far as their relative, relative their own salaries. Uh, they don't see the inhumanity of it all because they see everything in culture in terms of money. So the problem is that when you see a thing in terms of money, then you can validate almost anything under the sun. And so clearly unless we're an organized people to begin to fight back and to establish, impose some standards in terms of how people are going to be treated in the society, then clearly we're going to be victimized by tradition that existed 400 years ago, which persisted today. Brother Anthony? Yes. Uh, Yes, I want to add to something. I want to draw a parallel to a couple of sports that currently exist. Wrestling and boxing. What both of those sports have in common is that they both derived uh, from uh, uh, from games uh, plantation plantation owners used to play during the ch- days of chattel slavery. For entertainment, they would pit African males against each other, and. Uh, 
whoever won would get a bottle of liquor when the fight was over with. And they would uh, they would stage these fights on the plantation. This was for, uh, 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 for, for the Europeans' entertainment. They would pit these African males against each other, and uh, who and uh, they and uh, they would have to beat each other to death. Uh, otherwise, they would uh, they would wind up end up being tortured, and uh, whoever won would get a bottle of liquor. And uh, this took place through the nineteenth uh, throughout the nineteenth century. And uh, from uh, from these from this sort of activity, wrestling and boxing got its start. And in the uh, late nineteenth to early twentieth century, if my uh, understanding of sports history can serve, can, uh, serves me correctly. But uh, in terms of the way. Um, the way uh, uh, football and b- basketball and others uh, and players and other sports are treated, it comes from the days of chattel slavery, and uh, people get confused because they think because uh, uh, top athletes make 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 big bucks that they're not subject uh, to the same levels of exploitation that the masses of working people are. They are. It's just that people get confused because uh, a lot of people define themselves by their occupation. And uh, they don't, uh, they, they lose sight of the fact that workers, regardless of what activity they're engaged in, are human beings at the end of the day. Don't lose sight of the fact that regardless of how big your paycheck is, still a human being, you have a life outside of your job, and you have to be able to function long after that career is over with. Cousin Moses, Kimla? Well, well. The, the 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 oppressor has an image in his mind of Africans that that scratch when they don't itch, um, uh, acting like buffoons. And so when you have an image in your mind, then when someone stands up and articulates their position clearly, like a Colin Kaepernick or anybody, right? It doesn't coincide with the image that they have in their mind of you. So when they act towards you, they act very aggressively, very aggressive towards you. And you know, they don't see it as, as a, you're a grown man and you're supposed to be able to stand up and, and speak and articulate your position very well. All they see is that that don't coincide with image that historically I've had in my mind of you. And so they, when, they, when they go after you, they go after you aggressively. And that's what has been happening historically. Any response of Keeblong? There was me. No, Keeblong. I was in response to Brother Moses. Anything to add, Brother Moses? Talk to me. 
while we wait for, for Brother Moses, what we're going to do, we're going to the next video that deals with, uh, for those listening, for the listening audience, you may not be familiar with this young lady, uh, I would encourage you to, from time to time, go to YouTube and just type in her name. Her name is Vicky, D-I-C-K-I-D-I-L-L-A-R-D. D-I-L-L-A-R-D. She's an interesting African sister, and I think some of the many of the issues that she have that she has taken on is issues of value to our people. Her ideas and thoughts and work, I think, has my role in the scope of our people. One of the things she spoke to recently, to, she did a piece on she called the New Jim Crow. Now we said the New Jim Crow. What do we mean by that? She was talking about the new Jim Crow in the context of there was a um, report that there was special people chose to be a agent to work with the FBI as it relates to trying to figure out who and where are the white supremacists and how are they moving within the society. One of the things she revealed in her report was that what the white what what the white supremacists have done is they have changed their strategy and style of displaying their aggression against African people and people who are non people who are a non European. One of the things she reported that this particular uh, informer who was working with the FBI. They have worked with groups who have planned murder of African people, just outright murder, and been getting away with it. She talked about how the Klan has infiltrated the law enforcement to the point that they claim it's out of control and nothing they can even do about it. But yet they know that's mm-hmm. what they have done and know who are some of the people. She also talked about many times when you hear about um, beatings and killing in prisons, she talked about that most of you, a lot of your prisons, um, guards, are your white supremacists, are your KKK skinheads, what have you. And the FBI and other law enforcement agencies know this. And they know that many of these police killings now is widespread because this is what they are chosen to do. So, panelists, she called this the news of Crow. What did you take from those analysis and that discussion? I start out with you, Brother Anthony. I didn't, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to uh, look at the complete, uh, that, that uh, complete video. So I'm going to have to pass on this one. Okay, what about you, Brother Haki? Yes, in fact, are talking about the concept of New Jim Crow uh, in the context of the infiltration of the uh, white supremacists in law enforcement, you know, in prisons, I mean, in all of these institutions, and they they even know, know about it, but yet they are saying so widespread now, they, they find it very difficult to be able, um, able, able to, to stop it or control it. What do you make of that, Brother Haki? <laughs> well, Brother Africa, I'm not sure if, if it's the new Jim Crow. 
I think it's a continuation of Jim Crow. I don't think anything new about it. I think one of the things we got to be very clear, uh, you know, one of the things we talk about these institutions of power, particularly when it comes to the military formations or uh, correctional facilities, and they're looking for a certain mindset. They're looking for, in the case of police, they're looking for individuals who don't question authority. Uh, they're looking for individuals who do as they're told. Uh, they're looking for individuals, you know, who have a very narrow sense in terms of in terms of morality. So in that context, you're looking for people who are essentially very traditional in their outlook. And so when you talk about being traditional, then what you're talking about, we can, we can equate patriotism uh, to racism. In that sense, they're very, very traditional in terms of their outlook. So these are the kind of people you want to you want to entrust in positions of power, particularly when it comes to something like police or correctional officers. So no one's surprised that when you look in terms of the military and you look in terms of the uh, the pervasiveness of uh, these these kind of individuals in the military. Well, they made a decision back in the nineties that they would infiltrate the military. That's they made that the right the right wing specifically decided to do that. Because they've been thinking as far back as the 1990s, they've been anticipating uh, a civil war, uh, for lack of a better term, a race war in the society. So they've been actively, in, you know, encouraging people to go into the military, get arms trained, learn how to shoot, technical, uh, technical, uh, technical, tactical skills, those kind of things that are useful in terms of warfare. Uh, so I think this is just, it's just a continuation. But with respect to the to the correction officers. Uh, one of the things that, that you don't want, you don't want correction officers who are, edu- edu- who are educated. You don't want correction officers who are knowledgeable. You certainly don't want uh, correction officers who are, who are conscientious. You don't want those kind of individuals as, as correction officers because there are a lot of abuses that take place behind the wall. You want people who would look at those abuses and, and, and accept those abuses as justifiable. Of course, that comes with a certain kind of, a certain kind of mindset. So in this context, we're talking about a very traditional mindset which says that, listen, these people here, they deserve whatever whatever they get. And, and, and with that kind of mindset, uh, we can certainly understand their embrace in terms of racism because the people who deserve what they get have to be people who they feel deserve what they get wherever they are, whether they're in a facility or outside of a, a correctional facility. So it's, it's a big problem about Africa, but it's part and parcel of the, of the, of the American way. And, and I can, you know, I can talk endlessly about that, but the problem is that the bottom line is this, Brother Africa, African people in the society have to understand the, the urgency, to understand the challenges, the situation that we're confronted with. All these conservative black people who espouse this dumb, dumb stuff that they espouse, you know, they really, have to, they really have to stop and really do some self-critique in terms of their analysis, in terms of what's going on in society. Because the writing's on the wall. I, 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 I can't make it any clearer. What they're doing, how they're doing it, and the fact that they're protected by the system. When you look at the January 6th insurrectionists and look at the level in which they're being protected, you look at the narratives that, that paint them as somehow uh, uh, patriots, then they're telling you, they're telling you, in order for us to establish, reestablish our country, then a, lot of, a lot of these people who shouldn't be here got to die. I don't know what it is about African people where we don't get that. We so desperately, so many of us desperately want to be part of this that we're willing to we're willing to, um, uh, to 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 participate in a scenario where potentially we're going to have a, find ourselves killed. But with that, with, with the desire that strong to be part of this, that we don't even think on terms of what is in our self-interest anymore. We go along with, with, with whatever. 
It's a very scary scenario about Africa, but clearly, you know, it's not a new Jim Crow. This is a continuation Jim Crow, so no one should be surprised that this kind of stuff is happening. It's going to continue to happen. And this concept of the new Jim, Jim Crow woman will actually intensive the subtlety of taking off the sheets and going and using the official law, official law policy as a means to do the same thing. I think in terms of, you know, when we're talking about the new, that may be what she was alluding to. But, Brother um, Moses and Kibalom, how do we deal with this reality? Now we know that it exists it's in all of these institutions. What do you think the response of the so-called those in power, those who have the ability to tax the people, those who have the means, responsibilities for to protect the people? You know, how should they respond to this phenomenon? Um, Brother Moses, and then Brother Kibla. Well, the phenomenon specifically you're speaking of is which? Uh, speaking of the infiltration of white supremacists, they know they down, and they seem to be mm. given a, 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 they have the shield protecting them to, to uh. execute, I said execute, Innocent citizens based upon their color and get away with it under the law. Mm. Yeah, they, they've um, decided to take their tactics and their strategy and put it in some kind of legitimate organization and uh, undermine the, the rights of people of color from that position. Uh, uh, it's a strategy that's obviously been pretty effective with all these shootings and the police brutality and stuff. It's a direct result of that. Uh, these rednecks in power. And, uh, uh, I so don't Brother know. Moses, what, you saying, what you saying, Brother Moses, I'm in agreement with you. When there are unjust laws, how do we how do we attract unjust laws? Uh, panelists, Brother <coughs> Keeblon, what would be your response? If the laws are unjust, well, you know, if they have been used as another means to oppress the people, how should we deal with these unjust laws? I agree with what Brother Haki said. said it's nothing new. And uh, it, this guy who's head of the clans, I can't think of that gift for him. I can't, I, I can't, I can't come up with his name. But earlier than that, right, when he was, that's who, that's what's his name? Mr. Yeah, he, he, he said... Yeah, so y'all got me. He said, this is no big thing. He said, I'm, it's too, this thing is too big. He said, I'm in your churches. I'm in your schools. I'm on your court system. I'm in your, I'm in the, uh, 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 Congress. He said, this is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. So for us to appear, to look for some outside ourselves to help us, it, 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 it's crazy. It'd be like in the 60s, right, calling the police. For what? They're in the police for us. So any help we go get, it got to come from us and not outside ourselves because it's like a web. And then all aspects uh, of your society, right? Uh, so it's no need going outside yourself looking for help because you were right into one of them. That's my so thing. I would like to deal with these unjust laws, unjust practices. Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I would add that we have to be organized to defend ourselves. 
once we're organized and are able to protect ourselves adequately against an organized enemy, then uh, then we can uh, work for other people outside ourselves who want to act in solidarity with us. That is a possibility. And it's necessary in order to seize political power in this society anyway. But we have to uh, take the initiative and get ourselves organized. We have to understand that our enemy is well organized, and we have to be organized as well, order to assert our humanity and be able to stand up to our enemy, which is capitalism, racism, and uh, and, and all forms of expectations of one human being by another by any means necessary. Anyone else would like to say about this question? If not, we can translate to our third video for the night, and we'll be closing out. We'd like to hear some kind of feedback. That was an interesting video on YouTube um, deal with Kwame Brown and Gilbert Arena, and the subtopic is white fathers or white daddy. In this video, first you got to know who's Kwame Brown. Who's Kwame Brown? Kwame Brown, I believe, was the one of the first one of the first high school players to come directly out of high school, go straight into the pros. He came at a time where there was a large discussion around whether that high school players should be allowed to go into professional basketball or not. Many people wanted him to go to college for one or two years before they go professional ball. And the reason for that is because the colleges wanted their opportunity to explore our young African youth in the field of athletics. And what happened to Kwame Brown was he became the so-called poster child or symbolized the ideal that no future high school kids should want to come out of high school or kids come out of high school and be successful in the pros because they made it deliberate. Uh, they made it so that Kwame Brown would not reach his full potential as being a basketball player when he was in the NBA because of the fact he was young and came right out of high school. And they didn't like how it was undermining the whole institutions of basketball sports in terms of not going to college and the colleges make money off him, the schools, the presidents, and the coaches. And they used other basketball players were in the NBA to make sure he was not successful, i.e. Michael Jordan, etc. They used sports announcements such as Steve A. Smith to go into high schools to talk about him, to talk about him negatively, to ensure that the whole idea of if he was a great basketball player in high school, and you had the potential to play the professional football basketball league, you will not attempt to want to go directly to the professional basketball league, but sell your, but give your labor to the colleges. 
essence of the corruption corruption elements in terms of the sole question of sports. Everyone wanna play a game and using African athletes to make money. But um, so by the answer we saw Gilbert Reynolds and Kwame Brown take share with us your thoughts when it came to this phenomenon. Certainly. Uh Gilbert Arenas um uh, uh unlike Kwame Brown did go to college. And uh he had a relatively successful playing career. And uh they used to be teammates uh uh I on the um on what was the Bullets at that time, the Washington Bullets. Yeah. Washington Bullets. And um, they were rivals. Uh, and um, uh, let's see, um, Gilbert Arenas, for some reason, was jealous of uh, what of uh, Kwame Brown's success. And uh and uh he was one of the athletes that uh that criticized um uh Kwame Brown uh along uh with uh, certain sectors of the media, such as Stephen A. Smith, for not having uh a flashy enough game concerning he was such a uh, I think he was a, a number one pick. Uh, by uh, a number one pick out of high school. And uh, he received a lot of criticism during his playing career for not having a very flashy game for being that high a pick. And uh, that's been uh, – that's how he – that's been a knock against uh, Kwame Brown throughout his career that he wasn't, uh, you know, that flashy, didn't have, you know, huge stats. But uh, he had some ability because he played for about three or four different teams before he retired or wasn't picked up, whatever the and case may be. That equates to 13 years, Anthony. So when we start talking about success, he had the means and ability to play for 13 years and earn up to $80 million. But continue, Anthony. Yeah. And uh, and, uh, and you make a good point, Brother Africa, because for, for, for an NBA basketball player career, uh, over 10 years is kind of long. You know, uh, so, uh, you know, he did have some success uh in uh, in the NBA the fact that he played for uh, uh uh for more than one team is a sign of that you know so uh so somebody thought he had some ability you know uh and um he and with that money he put himself through college uh that should be pointed out and uh indications are he still has most of the money that he left the league with, even though he's been retired for a minute now. 
I forget how many years exactly. But uh, he uh, he's, he was subject to a lot of media attacks throughout his career. Uh, I guess uh, because people didn't uh, uh, didn't like the fact that he didn't put up uh, big numbers in terms of in in terms of his stats. But and that's why he's labeled a bust for that reason. But he uh, on um, a couple of years ago, he fired back at his critics, uh, especially in the media, like a Stephen A. Smith, um, Stephen Jackson, and uh, uh, what's the guy uh, called Becky? The one he called Becky to play with the Clippers and the Lakers. Matt Barnes. My skin brother. Matt Barnes. Yeah, Matt yeah, Barnes. Yeah, yeah, Matt Barnes. Matt Barnes, yeah. He's part Italian, by the way. Uh, Matt Barnes is, anyway, but that's how he... Uh, but, uh, you know, but anyway, uh, the, Kwame Brown started, uh, uh, you know, uh, fighting back, uh, you know, uh, through dialogue on his own YouTube pro- programs. And uh, eventually he uh, hooked up with Joe Brown. Not sure how how they how they cross paths, but uh, uh, he uh, they seem to have a, a close relationship with each other. But anyway, uh, but anyway, uh, Kwame Brown. For those who don't follow basketball. Uh, was on the Lakers for a while, and um, and according to him, he was instrumental in Kobe having an eighty-one point game in uh, in, in in one of his uh, regular season games. So. Okay, brother Hakeem, your we'll take on this issue: Why they made Kwame Brown a target? And want to create a scenario that you cannot and you should not want to come out of high school and go straight to the pros because you won't be successful like Kwame Brown. Even though his whole career was sabotaged, they made sure he was not successful because the coaches would make him make him do only two things: get rebound and play defense. They wouldn't let him shoot the ball. They wouldn't let the first two years in Washington under Michael Jordan, they kept him mostly on the bench, irregardless. So they made sure they did uh, a sabotage his career, and it wouldn't be considered as a success because, like Anthony said, he wouldn't have a certain amount of numbers, but had nothing to do with his skill level. But your response, Brother Hackey? Yeah, well, you know, um, you know, um, you know, one of the things is when we when we talk about you know the professional world and we talk about these so-called uh, pundits, so-called specialists. Uh, one of the things you know we we have to understand is that the relationship between um, you know professional institution, collegiate institutions, and these so-called sports people for sports is a very tight one. Uh, one of the things clearly, you brother, you're right, brother Africa. The the question around you know. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the possibility of making tons and tons of money 
you know, of you know, high school players uh, on a collegiate level, it's a big incentive, uh, you know, for you know, for uh, for 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 uh, colleges to, you know, um, do all they can in terms of making sure a Gilbert Arenas wasn't a success. I think also there was a certain amount of envy that also I think took place, given the fact that he was very young. So I think that was a, a tendency among uh, you know so many players who were perhaps a bit envious of the fact that he was so young and so talented that they wanted to see you know they wanted to see him uh, you know um, not excel uh, because in fact if he did excel at such a young age and it set a precedent in which more young people come out of high schools and join the professional ranks and become superstars. So I think it was a bit of an envy envy on on the part of some of these players and these coaches simply because we were very young. But we can't, under, we can't under, underestimate the, the, the question of profitability. Right? And, and, and one of the things is that if he went to the college, he would have made them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of, you know, his, his skill set. So we can't dismiss that. But I, but I think that his but, – but more importantly, Brother Africa, I think his anger specifically when it comes to this guy, um, Gilbert Arenas, I think Kwame's position is that Gilbert Arenas is, is essentially a slave. Uh, he has a slave mentality. So if you ever work with anybody with a slave mentality, someone who would do anything in terms of uh, climbing that, that ladder, uh, uh, if, which which includes, you know, backbiting, you know, um, lying, uh, undermining undermining a coworker or whatever. When you ever dealt with someone like you know with such a mindset, then it can be pretty irritating. So my guess is that uh, Kwame had a very difficult time. In fact, that given arenas from his perspective is being paid by these white folks to push a line which is um, antithetical in opposition, you know, to uh to give it up to a coming brown ever playing in profession on the professional level. So so given the fact that on, on one occasion when, when Gibbons Arena talked about the fact that, you know, uh when he teamed up with Carmen Brown, when he talked about the fact that he wanna be a pimp, that sort of spoke values in terms of his mindset. I mean, this guy is college educated. And the most he can aspire to be is to be a pimp. So it speaks volumes in terms of the kind of mindset. And of course, when we talk about the context of a pimp, we understand the only thing the pimp values is money. And so I think Kwame sort of put two and two together. But he looked at this guy in terms of his the things that he said and his kind of practice. I think he sort of concluded this guy is, is in fact an individual with a slave mentality. And it's that someone not only should not be trusted, but though anything he says is not worth, is, is, it shouldn't be taken seriously. So I think that, you know, over time, you know, Gibbard Arena has been able to, to get under Carmen Brown's skin, which, he, you know, he no longer ignore him. Because you know, cause when you start attacking a man in terms of not just in terms of his, his, his basketball skills, you start attacking in terms of, you know, his, his personal life, then that crosses the line. So I think uh, and as far as Kwame Brown assessment, that Gibbard Arena is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a slave, I think he's pretty much on point. Yeah, you made a really interesting thing on how do you make a hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars, and you end up having a boss working for working for a white man. You question the intelligence of that, you know, in terms of him still being dependent or having someone else over him. But yet they labeled him as a bus when he is totally independent. He own land and, and do independent farmer, farming. He have other investments and things where he is free to 
dictate his own his own lifestyle. So the question becomes, you know, you know, what is a bus? What do we mean by a bus when the man ever since at the age of fifteen was able to help and take care of his family? And when he left the game, he he didn't have to depend on no other institution to be employed by to take care of himself. So what is what do we mean by a bus? Brother Kibla, your take on what you heard so far. Well, my take on what I heard so far is is that uh, you got a good basketball player, and seeing me, you want to give me as as soon as you can, right? But I'm gonna throw a little wrench in the game. I want to make a comparison between what they're trying to to to, to pull off here and with whites. You got. I looked up one day, professional people who have gone to college, and those who never went to college quit when they got in there. I used to be surprised. Majority of those wealthy people didn't go to college or quit once they got in there. Because my take is once you got it, you tapped in that power within. Once you got it, you got it. So Bill Gates, for example, he went to college. But at some point, he said, I got this thing. I ain't got to go no further. Same thing with Zuckerberg. I think John D. Rockefeller. Um, I think Ford, too. Allen, the movie director. Mark Wahlberg, the guy who founded Wendy's. These people didn't go to college. The one that the one that, that, that I'm really um, um, excited about is Rachel Ray. She makes about $15 million a year. What she did, her family owned a, a restaurant, and she watched her grandmama cook on a regular basis, right? And she just took what her grandma did and her own thing to it and started doing 15-minute meals. And next thing you know, she's making millions of dollars. So my thing is, once you tapped in it to that power within and you got it, like, fam- like um, Am- famous Amos, he's another one, didn't go to college, right? Then you go out with it because the goal, when you go to college, you go on there to try to get as much skills that you can so you can make a lot of money. <laughs> so this brother, you know, he already got it, and so I think I think it, 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 it's an assumption that if you don't go to college, that somehow you're not capable of um, articulating your position or whatever. You know, I man, I never went to college, but I'm not intimidated by anybody. Matter of fact, I feel more comfortable with a person who's at the bottom level than I do. I feel more comfortable with a person who got a PhD than I do with a person that don't. Because we know from Africa, from our studies, right, the higher, the higher we get, we get stupid. <laughs> I mean, we get like Cola Power and Condoleezza Rice, right? We actually get get stupid. So the fact that somebody boasts about all the degrees they have, it makes me comfortable. I mean, I'm really comfortable in talking to them. So I think this premise of uh, this idea of thinking that because a person doesn't go to college, somehow he's not going to be able to fit in society among the rest of them, I think that's, that's kind of crazy right there. Because we can tell on this program that we've got a lot of people from different, you know, uh, for, matter of fact, the people I've come in contact with, right, are some of those that got the least education. And the ones that got the most education, they went higher and higher up in the system 
are some of the most backward people I've ever met. So I just go put it like that there and let it go like that. But I think once you tap into yeah. what you, I think once you tap into that power within, right, then you have to keep on going to school. You know, and I'm sure basketball ain't the only thing he was he was good at. In you know, most people are good at multiple things. So that's all I have to say with that point. But yeah, he had very high so-called so-called SAT scores. He was very, mm-hmm. you know, he could have went to any school he wanted to when he was in high school, at the eight, at the, at the tenth and eleventh grade level. So anyway, mm-hmm. Brother Keeblon talks to me, which not Keeblon, Brother Moses talks to me. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure where to begin. Do you call someone who's a bus who is a young man, played 13 years in the NBA, earned over 80 million dollars, is totally independent, don't have to work for someone? Is that something to be ashamed of? No, not in and of itself, no, no, not per se. Uh, uh, employment, and it's just employment and, and working and, and the fruits of one's labor. All right, good enough, Brother Moses. Panelists, you only have a few minutes left. What I want everyone to do, in terms of that theme, people may be asking, what does this question of corruption got to do with corruption, power, and race? They all come together when we talk about the examples. And let me give you an example and just get each one of y'all response to it. In football, when we talk about economics, you got to look at how the game is being played in terms of the old question of uh, exploitation of, of, of football players or athletes. But in football, you know, the owners have established a certain amount of money that they have to invest in the football team. There's a cap in terms of how much money or how much labor costs they would have to pay for their 53-man squad. For example, they may say for a whole team, they can't go over $253 million for 53 people. Okay? But one of the things in terms of how slick, in terms of how you look how money is allocated in the structure is that if you have $253 million or $250 million that must be allocated over the whole team among 53 ball players, and you say it's a team concept, and you tell people that there are certain positions may be more valued than other positions, positions even though you say it's a team concept, now you break it down, push it individualism. Why is it that... One position you may be willing to pay a player thirty to forty percent of the total amount of money for the whole team. Does that make sense to you? And it may make sense to you because you see how the game of corruption and racism plays. There are one position that that individual may get thirty to forty percent of the total amount of money for the whole team. And do you know what that one position is? Quarterback. 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 And what is about the position of quarterback? If you notice in quarterback, there seems to be a historical legacy of only certain types of athletes get to play their position. And not necessarily your best athletes. They basically that seem to be a position that had been allocated 
just to hire only white quarterbacks. So you have one person making $50 million out of the whole $250 million or more, and the rest of the money has to be divided up among the rest of the football players. Now, there are also other positions where the owner has decided to devaluate certain positions and pay you less, but yet they may be more important in terms of productivities. For example, running backs. Running backs today, that is one of their lowest paid positions in football. But who play mostly running backs now? Africans. So, parents, talk to me. Does that make sense to y'all, Brother Hackey? No, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And um, it has less to do with economics and only to do with tradition. Uh, one of the things that you, when you, when you value an athlete, is the, uh, the rate of pay determines how much you value that individual. And so it's no surprise that in the NFL you have a situation where the most valued individual is quarterback, which happens to be white. Even and the irony is that even when you have African quarterbacks, the level of pay compared to their white compatriots doesn't come close. So clearly this racial component is, is a fact of life. And so it has nothing to do in terms of economics per se. It has more to do with tradition. And so this is the sad reality, reality we have to confront. So, Anthony, your response? Does that particular uh, relationship yes. make sense uh, to you? It doesn't make sense from uh, from a teamwork standpoint. It definitely doesn't make sense. And I understand football to be a, a, a team sport, and therefore each component of the team uh, has to perform at a high level in order for that team to be successful. But... Um, from a political standpoint, it might make sense in an exploitative economic system, which capitalism is. So, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, but, in, uh, but from a teamwork standpoint, I can't see how football teams develop any sort of chemistry with that kind of economics dis- disparity among teammates. Brother Kibla, your response? From, from an African perspective, it don't make sense, but from a capitalistic perspective, from their perspective in the West, it does make sense because uh, every single player on the team, although valuable right, they have to get the ball from the quarterback except for the center. After the center, right, everybody else gets the ball from the quarterback, even the receiver. Everyone gets the ball from the quarterback. But, uh, like, from African aspect, it don't make any sense if you put your team sport. But I don't, I, I don't separate, separate football from other areas of our, our activities, right, because I think it's a correlation between all these jobs. And football is a job. All these jobs on, on your job at work, right? The one that does the least work gets the most pay. You know what I mean? Even mm-hmm. in the school system, if you even the school system, if you take the um the black or white component out of it, right, the athletic director makes more money than the principal. 
person might get lucky with seventy five thousand a year. After that, the director makes at least a million. If you could, if you want these colleges, these colleges like you know Penn State, whatever, they make like a million dollars. Some make two million dollars a year. So um, it's a capitalist, a capitalist society, right? And in a capitalist society, you know that everybody feeding off the quarterback. And um, and I think the receiver should get just as much money as as the um, quarterback because he has to catch the ball. But it goes down to the fact that every player on the football team gets the ball from the quarterback, whether you're running back, whether you're receiver, whatever. Only person that doesn't get it from the quarterback is a center because center already has the ball. But like I said, I agree with Haki. It don't make sense. But I agree with the um, brother, I forgot his name right, from a capitalist perspective, it does make sense. Cause I th- and I, I would want to take it to somebody would I make I would give people homework. Find the correlation between our enslavement and how they run these businesses. Because they run these businesses the same doggone way. There's no difference. Mm-hmm. And Brother Moses, we give you a final thought, and then we're going to be closing out. Brother Moses, talk to me. Yeah, the business. Um, I'm sort of out of it right there. Okay, no problem. No problem. You listen to Africa on the Move. is a weekly program under the banner of the African Wedding Association. We have discussed tonight the theme, Corruption, Power, and Race Come Together. You can hear this radio program every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Tune in every Sunday. We come to speak truth to the powerless and the powerful, and we may not give you what you want, but we try our best to give you what you need. So at this point in time, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to ask all our participants tonight to give us their final thoughts. We'll be right back. This is Brother Africa from Africa on the Move. Marcus Gatwood comes to town. Marcus Gatwood comes to town. Can't get no food to And you, hello, 
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer. To give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. That's right. Don't forget about our Palestinian brothers and sisters. They need our solidarity and our brothers and sisters throughout the world, all the oppressed community. We must come together and kick the yoke of imperialism, capitalism, neocolonialism, Zionism, sexism, racism, all systems that exploit human beings. They are the people in the and we must get rid of it. 
So we welcome you back to Africa Move and closing out on the 9th of January, 2022. We were speaking on the theme tonight, corruption, power, and race come together. We are going to our political panelists and ask them for their final thoughts. But before we do that, we would like to remind you again a couple of announcements. Um, to remind you that, one, the African Awareness Association, they will be taking the annual Black History Education and Culture Tour Travel Challenge to Cuba. That will be this summer from July 23rd to the 31st. If you're interested in going, please join them. You can call them at 804-549-7492 or 202-714-9435. That's, they're going to Cuba with the African Awareness Association. Also, if you haven't purchased your book yet, and you have your library that has space for dealing with the history of your people, that you need to know what happened in the past, who, as Brother Malcolm said, who stole you, who brought you, who gave you the name you gave, who oppressed you. This is an excellent book that was written by Bob Brown from the Pan-African Roots Publishers. Two volumes, one and two, the name of the book is We Demand the Full Disclosure and Digitization of All Slavery Era Records. Please make sure you go to the website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, and make your purchase now. And last but not least, we'd like to remind you tomorrow we'll be doing a special show on Africa on the Moon. We're going to be doing a special show on Alliance for Global Justice in Honor and Memory. Happy Little Freedom Fighter, Brother Chuck Kaufman. So make sure you come back tomorrow at 7 o'clock from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Standard Time to participate in this special program. That's Monday. January the 10th, 2022, at 7 p.m. So now we'll go back to our political panelists for today's program. And we'd like to ask each one to just give us their final thoughts for the night. And to our special guest today, and our beloved brother, Kibalon, we'll bring you in. And we'll ask you to give us your final thoughts for the night. Brother Kibalon. Uh, my final thoughts has to do with something you say is come back to and you didn't. And there was voting about uh, African people in, in the amendment vote. Well, there's only one amendment. That's the, that's the um, 15th Amendment. And you got 27 amendments, and you kind of wonder how you get 27 amendments in a constitution over 230 years old. I mean, I made my speech 27 times in an hour. How you go 230-some years with only 27 amendments? What they have done is replace the amendments which the constitution called for with interpretations. Interpretation can be biased, but that's another story, right? But what happens is the 15th Amendment doesn't actually say you got the right to vote. It says you should not be denied the right to vote, you know, based on your color. So you don't have, you know, we don't have a amendment every year. You only have 27 amendments, right? You got the 15th Amendment, that's it. But what happens is they have put up barriers to prevent you from exercising your right. They're not saying that when you come to this booth, right, black man, go home. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing, redrawing the areas, putting voting booths in places where you can't, where you're not going to go, and a poll tax. They have all these different rules that it came from, right, which we, 
which we know that they're designed to stop us exercising our right to vote. So it's not like a minion, a amendment, a constant amendment every year or every so many years, because there's only one amendment that's the um, 15th amendment. There's only 27 amendments altogether. But they have put up barriers to stop you from exercising your right to vote. So that's that's my um, my final remark for the evening. Thank you, Brother Treblon, for your contribution to today's program. And we will now move to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts. It's been a very interesting show, very educational. And I appreciate the opportunity to put in my little two cents. Um, we have to continue to fight fight apartheid. Uh, uh, it's a subtle but blatant uh, manifestation of racism and uh, takes place in our everyday life through the systematic institutions of this capitalist society. Uh, we must recognize it for what it is. Uh, there's a veil between the races and uh, it's very real. Uh, I look forward to tomorrow night and, and, and uh, the celebration of the life of Chuck Kaufman. Thank you, and good night. Thank you, Brother Moses. Now we go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for the night. Yeah, I would simply say that the level of anger in the society is growing exponentially. And uh, one of the things we got to understand is that when you talk about the growth of, of anger in the society, the government does something that's very, 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 very critical. That is, it does a very good job in terms of displacing that anger. So whereas the anger rightfully should be directed toward the government, the government recognizes that. So in order to keep people from directing anger at the government, what it does is give the government some alternatives to focus that anger on. If we haven't figured out the game yet. I guess we never will. But clearly, uh, the, the seeds are being sold, which suggests that the problem in society is those who disagree with the capitalist system or those who actually fight for change. They are the enemy of the state, and people are gravitating toward that message on the right. So it seems to me, you know, uh, you know, as progressive individuals, as progressive people, specifically the African community, we got no other recourse but to organize and agree those institutions that we need. It's not rhetorical. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not uh, hyperbole. It's something that we have to do because we have to seriously think in terms of survival in a very increasingly hostile uh, uh, country. Now, I would say that Brother Africa is always to encourage people to unravel the matrix. That is key in terms of understanding the games that are being perpetuated against us. And understanding those games, then we can better strategize in terms of what precisely we have to do in terms of um, formulating our longevity, you know, in the society. I would say that Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And we now go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is uh, that people should remember that today is Ahmed Secretary's birthday, and that and the best way to pay tribute to his work and legacy is to join an organization that is working for your people's liberation. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. You can find out more about our history, 
background, the history of Pan-Africanism, in addition to purchasing a copy of of Bob Brown's uh, wonderful book by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you for having me on tonight's program. And thank you, too, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to to today's program and to our listening audience. We'd like to thank you for allowing us to come into your homes this evening where we can speak truth to power. As well as to the powerless, we'd like to remind you that Africa on the Moon will be on next Sunday and every Sunday from 7 p.m. Eastern Time. What we're going to do is close out tonight with some words of wisdom from Brother Ackman Secretary as he taught us and we try to apply this when he stated, without revolutionary consciousness, there can be no revolution. All those who have had to conduct revolutions have been able to testify to this. But where those revolutionary consciousness come from, as it's not fundamental to man, nor does it come into being and develop spontaneously. History teaches that it is created and developed through ideological education and revolutionary practice. We can equally affirm that without ideological training and without revolutionary action, there can be no revolutionary consciousness. This is by Ahmed Sekoutoure in one of his many books, Strategy and Tactics of the Revolution. Remember that lesson. Let's continue to fight the power, and we'll see you next week. We leave you with music of inspiration. We thank you for allowing us Again, come to your home. This has been Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. Let's encourage each other to continue to move forward ever, backwards, never. From the Indians, welcome the pilgrims. And to the buffalo who once ruled a plain Like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline in a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter in America Yes, and all of the healers Have been killed Sent away Yeah, but the people know The people know 
Right on. 
audience is bugging. It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid. So to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause. The way we live is positive. We don't tell our relatives. Pop, 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 when it's shot, who's the blame? Headline, front page, and rap, the name. MC Delight here to state the bottom line. The black on black crime was way before our time. Took a brother's life with a knife that's white. Cried cause he died of trifling death when he left his very last breath. Was I slept to watch his step? Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man. Cause Nonsense violence, not a good policy, therefore we 
must ignore, fight and bustin'. Heaven's at the door, so there'll be no bum rushing. Let's get together because we're falling apart. I heard a brother shot another, it broke my heart. I don't understand the difficulty, people. Love your brother, treat him as an equal. They call us animals, mm-mm, I don't agree with them. I'll prove them wrong, but right is what you're proving them. Take keys before I leave for what I'm saying, or we'll all be on our knees. is served on a platter, making a day, not failing to anticipate, they got greedy so they fell for the bait, that makes them a victim, picked and plucked, new jack in jail, but this is the best they ever duck, there's no one around cause in jail you're a number, they never took the time to wonder about, yes we urge to merge, we live for the love of our people to hope they get along, Point to our brothers and sisters who don't know the time. Boy, so we got to ride. Set in your head, you know our job to build and collect ourselves with intellect. To revolve, to evolve the self-respect. Cause we, we got, got to, to keep, keep ourselves in check. Or else it's...
Let's go.